Recorded live. Hello again, everybody. This is Pastor Visser from the Covenant People's Ministry, once again bringing you a Wednesday night Bible study. And with me, like always, is Obadiah 118 from the ChristianIdentityForum.net. Are you there, brother? I am, Jeremy. G'day, Jeremy, and g'day, listeners. Great to be with you once again. Indeed, it is great to be diving right back into those scriptures. I believe last week's show was probably one of our best, honestly, in retrospect. Yes, that was good, diving into all those scriptures and looking at all the various aspects of things. It was, um, it was a good show. That segment went down very well, I believe. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, things are getting cold over here in uh, Atlanta, in the state of Georgia. I guess fall has is, is come upon us, and it's, it's gotten pretty nipply in the air. So, you know, how's it over there? How's you the can weather have all- over there? Well, it's kind of bleak today. Um, it's going to be 22 degrees, but it's been a very overcast spring. Normally, there isn't a cloud in the sky. Oh, we do get some cloudy days, but um, it's been very cloudy. We've got a lot of, we're getting a lot of rain, which is good because we were in drought for about 10 years uh, up till um, this year. So um, the, the, the dams and everything are filling back up. But um, yeah, it's going to be 22 degrees today, and there's going to be a cool change, a bit of wind, a bit of rain, but um, I won't complain too much. Nice. Nice. Yeah, it doesn't really matter how the weather is. What really matters, at least down here, seemingly, is you know how God's going to dictate the uh, the hordes upon us. Because <laughs> here in the South, man, I'm telling you, it's getting uh, it's getting kind of almost as we near this whole election and everything. You know, it seems like the uh, Negroes always get a little uppity around this time of, time of year. Well, you've only got two weeks to go, haven't you? And and. I would say that Obama's likely to get in. They say that he um, he lost the first debate that won the the, the other two. But um, I, I think it's plan- it was planned all along for him to have another term in office. Oh, sure, sure. They love they got to really squeeze him out. Here it seemingly is a trend for almost every American president. Once they get in office, they're hailed as, you know, almost being like the new messiah. And then after a few years of doing destruction and causing all sorts of problems and never keeping their promises like jacking up prices or sending more troops to war, then they'll go ahead and they'll kind of demonize them right before they're going to go out. We saw that with, like, George W. Bush right before Obama came in. How everyone transferred to all the the guilt and the and the blame over to George W. as if it was seemingly his fault. But here it is four years later, and Obama didn't keep a single promise he made. If you remember back in the day, he said he would withdraw troops within 30 days of becoming president, and on the 30-day mark, he sent legions more over there to fight his war. So I was wondering why he wasn't impeached, you know, three years and ten months ago. Yes, it's a very good question, isn't it? But... Um... Let, let's face it. Whoever they put in office, it doesn't matter. It's Tweedledum and Tweedledummer, isn't it? They're going to, they're going to just uh, march to the dance to the the Jews' tune. So whoever you get in office is just a puppet anyway. It's the Jews who control everything. I mean, APAC would have to be the most powerful powerful political organisation in the world, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I think most of them know that if they're not kosher approved, it sure is the attitude of Hollywood and a lot of the abominations coming out of that. You know, don't even bother watching the new Puppet Master movie. <laughs> Total garbage. Now, the pup, when you say Puppet Master, is that the one about the little puppets that come to life or the one with Donald Sutherland in it? No, no, the one with Sutherland was actually not too bad. The one with the little puppets, 
from Charles Band, Full Moon Pictures. Their new one now, it's got, you know, it's like a cross between non-sploitation uh, and non-sploitation. Oh, right, because back in the day, I used to collect those puppets. You, you, you can actually buy them. I had the one with the skeleton head, um, the one with the pin head. And I, I used to love those films, but this was back in the days when I didn't really know that, when, when I thought that Nazis were, were the baddies and, uh, you know. Yeah, exactly. It is, but there you go, That's and that's kind of my point. A lot of these small companies kind of know that they got to bend over for the Jew in order to get a position in Hollywood. Perfect example, that's probably Britney Spears a couple of years ago, shaving her head off and donning a Star of David. And now she's like host of American Idol or who wants to be a whatever, one of these reality shows, and seemingly making more money as a host than she ever did selling CDs. Well, there's a guy who does a great show, um, great a music show on, on the Counter Currents website in one of the podcasts there. His name's Robert somebody. He's had years and years of um, experience in the, in the country, country and western uh, music side of things. And he... Um, he was discussing about how, how all of these people that you see on American Idol, the judges, and America's Got Talent, they're all Jews. All the judges are Jews. Yeah, I believe that. And it's kind of interesting, too, some of the people that they choose, like Paula Abdul. I mean, if you're going to really put somebody in there to be a, uh, you know, I've never seen a single episode, but I know the premise. But, I mean, if you put somebody in there to be a judge of music, then they should be somebody who's had like a 50-year career. They should put somebody in there like, you know, Bob, you know, anybody would be better than a lot of these one-hit wonders that they put up in there. But, yeah, exactly. You know, if you're not a Jew. Well, they've, even got Howard, they've even got Howard Stern, you know, judging. What does he know about talent? All he knows is about filth and porn. I mean, he's sort of like a mainstream Martin Lindstedt, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. That's my whole point. Howard Stern, who's really only known for portraying one other actor or one other character outside of his uh, reality-based television shows, and that's the Fart Man. So it's quite interesting. Exactly. Exactly. That guy is probably the scum of the scum. But here in America, they do tote him up, and they'll they'll uh, condemn and demonize people like Don Imus and, and other radio, you know, somewhat right-wing conservative radio host, but they love that Howard Stern guy, and he's probably the filthiest person on Sirius Satellite Radio and on, on late-night television in America. Oh, he's, he's got a potty mouth. There's no doubt about that. Years ago, I saw that movie he made. What was it called? Private Parts, I think it was called. And it, it contained pretty much every kind of sin imaginable because it was about his life. It was a classic story about a Jew you know, what the Jews get, get up to. And there was one really telling scene where when he was in um, college, he made this movie, uh, a, a short film, and, and it depicted him stabbing Christ, blood spurting out of Jesus Christ. And I thought, well, doesn't that really tell you a lot? Yeah, that's like a uh, an admission, kind of like we were discussing last week in the hidden in plain sight attitude of our enemies. A lot of the, uh, crypto, the top-level Jews like Howard Stern and... Uh, Oh, and, you know, the list is endless. But, yeah, their their hatred of Christ is well known. In fact, many of them will, will put that into their comedy routines. You know, they think it's funny, where a lot of times I'll be watching it or, or seeing it, and I'll just, I don't get the joke, really, you know. Well, I'm sure you've seen that clip of Sarah, heard that clip of Sarah Silverman, that Jew comedian, who um, came out and said that um, it, 
if she was, you know, alive at the time of Christ's death, she would have killed him all over again. You know, so what, what an admission that was. And, and, and what a disgrace that she could actually get away with saying that. You know, back in the 1950s, she would have been thrown in the, thrown in the clink. But nowadays, she's applauded. Yeah, exactly. And if, we were, if, if you or I were to say something like that about President Obama, you know, we'd find ourselves in, in the prison real quick. But, you know, that's a really good point, too. I mean, I actually pointed out how 50 years ago a man could go to court uh, during divorce proceedings and actually use infidelity, you know, as part of his defense. Now, in the year 2012, it's no longer a crime Adultery, at least, but once upon a time here in America, it was, and it could sway a judge to your favor one way or or another. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Just how far we've slidden down the tubes. Uh, I mean, now we have we've legalised abortion, which is the the worst crime of the them all, as far as I'm concerned. You know, slaughtering the innocent while they're still in the womb. For goodness' sake, it's bad enough killing them when they're outside of the room, outside of the womb, let alone inside it. Yeah, totally. Talk about a false dichotomy, because that's how it is for American women anyway. At least they're taught within the public school systems that a child truly isn't a child, that life doesn't begin until birth, as opposed to the Christianity concept of conception. But yet, seemingly, magically, within seconds of after being born, then it becomes a human. So what I'm saying is, here in America, you know, it's okay to get an abortion. It's even okay to get like a midterm abortion. But if you kill your child a minute or two after you know, it's outside the womb, it's a totally different story. And so it's kind of like a false dichotomy that they instill within our women, I think. Oh, exactly. And you hear some of these lefties saying, oh, you, we must legalise abortion so women won't terminate their pregnancies themselves. They won't stick a, um, you know, a coat hanger or something in their womb and terminate the baby that way and, and, and damage themselves. But they have absolutely no concern about the children, the infants. And uh, you, you, you read some of these you know, um, articles written by anti-abortionists about um, just what gruesome practices they get up to in abortion clinics. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll stick these like tubes inside a kid's head and suck out its brains and just, you know, just absolutely just, it's like something out of a horror movie. And, and you know, this is legalised. It's just, oh, no wonder y- Yahweh's is, judgement has fallen upon white, white society. No wonder we're being flooded by non-white immigrants and, you know, every, we're just poised for absolute disaster soon. I, I mean, you know, we richly deserve it, don't we? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an extremely valid point too because as we were uh as I was discussing last week and how my wife and I were actually living in a liberal arts college back in the day when she became pregnant with our firstborn child, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing. We were like young parents. And um, living on a college like that, especially a liberal type college, when a woman becomes pregnant, you know, the first thing they if you go to them for help, the first thing they do is refer you to planned parenthood. And most people don't know what that is going in. They're like, oh, Planned Parenthood, we'll go see what that is. It's almost like I'm going to plan out the ideal of being a parent and or having children. But when my wife actually went down there to see what was going on, and keep in mind this is our first child, to Planned Parenthood, their advice at Planned Parenthood was for her to abort the fetus of her husband. That's basically what's taught in public schools. And it wasn't even a, a, a thought in our head. But it was kind of sad that, you know, they didn't have the alternative option for women available other than, you know, abortion. It was almost like it wasn't even an issue. In a college-type sector like that, when a woman becomes pregnant, the first thing they say is go get it aborted. 
Yeah, it's amazing how it rolls off the tongue when they say things like that. Like it's just, you know, sort of like, you know, stepping onto a train or off a train or something. But it, it, it just doesn't matter. And it, it's just outright murder. And, and there was one guy on Melbourne radio, radio here, a guy called Neil Mitchell, and he was, um, he was complaining about uh, these um, anti-abortionists wanting to show movies about abortion in schools. And he was complaining about how gruesome these movies were and how, how terrible and evil all these rotten anti-abortionists were. But, you know, he had, he had absolutely no problem with the, the kids being terminated in the womb. That wasn't a problem. But the movies, you know, they were a problem. Yeah, it's kind of what I pointed out before in the past. At least according to American standards, they did a recent poll, and according to American Christians, racism, quote-unquote, was a bigger sin in the average mind of the you know the Quan out there than homosexuality or or adultery or drunkenness or any of these other things. And so it kind of goes to show how powerful the media is, at least here in modern society in the year 2012, that your average Judeo-Christian out there is programmed to have a knee-jerk response when they hear or think somebody's racism, but will turn around and tell the faggots that they're accepted of God. Well, um, Derek McThomas of Australia's Calling Fame, his latest edition of that show, is a, is a, he, he gives us really excellent account of how homosexuals um, do things through gradualism in society and, and leftists in general, how they'll start off, you know, saying, that, oh, we, sh we should leave homosexuals alone because, you know, they, they don't really do us any harm, you know, and they sort of leave it at that for a while and then they'll say, oh, well, you know, we need to um, legalise homosexual marriage and, you know... Um, then they allow that. They hasn't quite got to that stage in Australia yet. They haven't legalised gay marriage yet, but they will. And then it gets to the point where they say, well, what they're doing now, they're teaching kids in the school, schools that um, pretty much that heterosexuality is the new abnormal and homosexuality is the new normal. And so, it, you know, these things, people say, oh, if we just, you know, as long as people, we leave people to do what they they do in the privacy of their own home it, it doesn't really matter but um, homosexuality is never homosexual homosexuals never leave it in the privacy of their bedroom they want to reshape the world in their image a, a world where homosexuality is just embraced and seen as the most wonderful thing of all time and the heterosexuality is seen as something well, well as homosexuality used to be seen yeah that's very true here in america they'll even start them as young as like the first second third grade and I've heard the analogies that a lot of the liberals will put into their mind. And one, one of the analogies is that, is that in, in the animal world, according to them, almost every species of animal has bisexual tendencies. And yeah, granted, you may see a dog run up on another male dog once in a while and hump them. But I thought humans, at least Adamites or Israelites, were supposed to be top of the food, food chain for a reason. And so I think that's the reason why Hitler, in his own writings straightforwardly said that atheism is a return to the state of an animal. Because once you accept the ideal like there is no God, as David says, the fool says in their heart, there is no God in Psalms, then all these other things are open to possibilities. You know what I mean? Christians wouldn't even, a true Christian wouldn't even consider that lifestyle. But it is ironic how they teach diametrically opposed to what's always been accepted as, you know, moral. Now, Jeremy, I must ask you about something that you um, mentioned in the chat room and uh, in News Guys, uh, uh, the News Guys show last um, Sunday or last Saturday evening, your time. You said that you went to dinner with Eli James and Andrew Harrington Hitchcock, who wrote that excellent book, 
the synagogue of Satan. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And I have an autographed copy of it right here on my bookshelf. I'm looking right at it. And that was during the uh, Feast of Tabernacles 2008. And that was actually an extremely good time that we had. Jonathan Williams was there and still was directing the United Church of Yahweh. Uh, Laszlo was there. Darren Howard was there. And that was also a time that Eli James drove all the way down from Chicago here to Georgia to preach. And we had a really great weekend, actually. And, and Andrew Carrington Hitchcock flew in with about three other people from Britain. And we had a really good weekend. And he was giving out autographed copies of his book. He even had copies of his book, Synagogue of Satan, translated into the Japanese, like David Duke. So, again, I guess people over in Japan kind of hate the Jew, too. Like Scripture says, they are contrary to all men. Well, Japan's one of the most racially homogeneous um, countries on earth. Um, but, uh, oh, I would have loved to have been, been there and had dinner with you guys. That would have been a great dinner conversation. Yeah, it was, it was really good. And actually, that's kind of what the dinner conversation centered around was the seed line hypotheses. And, and that's what we spoke about was Adam and Eve and the original sin, what transpired in the garden. It was, it was really great, actually. And it was one of the, that was the only time I actually met uh, Eli. And so, you know, a lot of people out there want to put a bad name on Eli, but I know for a fact he's none other than a trying-seeking Christian like us. Yeah, I don't believe, I don't agree with everything um, Eli says. He said some things about the Canaanites that I don't really agree with, or I don't agree with at all. But um, I don't think he's a Jew or a Zogbot or anything. I mean, you know, you, you can be mistaken and not be, not be working for the government or to be of the, the synagogue of Satan. It is possible. <laughs> exactly. You know, not everything's a conspiracy. When you hear people like uh, Shane or Logan Hunter talking about the Jews are jamming my phone on talk show, it's like, you know, Maybe if you had a job and weren't using an Obama phone, we wouldn't have these problems. But, you know, a lot of these guys want to blame the Jew for everything. And the Jew caused it to rain today, damn it. Yes, well, speaking kind of, of not really of Logan, but uh, the legendary Pastor Martin Linstead, I've got a bit of an announcement to say, re my um, little short story I'm writing about Pastor Martin. They called A Hobble Halloween. Now, I, I was originally going to um, finish it off and... Um, and get it read out on next week's show, because we're having a special Halloween edition, are we not, next week? Indeed, yeah. All right. Well, anyway, I'm not going to have it finished on, on time, but not only that, I don't think I can... <laughs> I don't think I could read it out on air, Jeremy. Um, uh, for a start, I think it's actionable, and by that I mean Marty could probably use it to, to sue me in a court of law, and he'd, have a very good, he'd stand a very good chance of, of winning. But I've really, I really like this story. I mean, it's the funniest thing I've ever written. Every time I just think about it, I burst out laughing. <laughs> Especially about the ending. Oh, Marty gets his come up and she should see it. But um, so I thought to myself, well, look, I can't really post this online without risking legal action. So what can I do? And what I'm going to do um, is once I've finished it, it won't be ready by next week, but once I've finished it, I'm going to send it to, to people like you who I can trust not to, dis to distribute it anywhere, to post it anywhere else online, and people like Bill Fink, Mike Delaney. In fact, I'm going to send it to all of Marty's enemies. And you, and you know, Jeremy, I might even send it to traitor Glenn Miller. Now, I'm not a particular fan of Glenn Miller, but just, just, you know, just to annoy Marty, I think I might. But, um, yeah, no, this is, it is quite a funny story, if I do say so myself. And you know how Marty often starts his shows late. He'll come on air and he'll say, oh, look, I'm sorry, folks, I'm running a bit late because I, um, 
<laughs> Survivor, I was watching The Walking Dead or something. After you've read this story, you'll never view that excuse in the same way again. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it oh, on so many levels. Jeremy, you are going to love it. I guarantee it. You will laugh yourself silly, especially at the ending. It is the most poetic justice that uh, Marty receives in, in this story. So, you know, um, this is going to be a collector's items, item, folks. You know, in years to come, you'll be able to sell it for thousands of dollars on eBay if you can get, get a hold of a copy. But it's going to be very exclusive. I'm, not, I'm only going to send it out to people I, I know can not, know are not going to distribute it anywhere. So people who don't like me, people that call me cruel names like over gender bender and things like that, you don't get a copy. Yeah, I love it. And I, I think actually it's your, in a lot of ways you're good for Marty because like last week you announced that you were writing a book. The next day, here comes Marty. He announces he's writing a book. And we announced that we were doing Desert Island Verses that's going to be theologically based and centered around Scripture. And now Marty's having a new show trying to counter it. And, and to me, I think that's great. That's refreshing. That's what we should be doing. Well, I want, about Marty's book, you know what, the, what it's about, what it's called? 10,000 uh, Gaylords, I believe. <laughs> I was going to ask you, how many homosexual references do you think it'll have per sentence? And obviously it'll be just jam-packed with fag references. Got to love it. You know, and the beauty of it is, is if he actually wrote something like that with that many scatological references, he could send it to Simon and & Schuster and probably get a book deal. Well, they'll, they'll publish that. But if you wrote something theological and actually centered around Christian identity dogma of saying that the Jews are the spawn of the devil, it wouldn't. Well, we were speaking about Howard Stern a little earlier, and I don't know why Marty could make a fortune if he became one of the, you know, the freaks that call into um, Howard Stern's show. All these weirdos. He even has has Nazis. Glenn Miller. He actually spoke to to Glenn Miller at one stage. So uh, Marty could become a regular on the Howard Stern show and just make a killing. I think that's great and sound advice, actually, because George T.K. is already over there, and George T.K. and Martin Lindsay there have their own little uh, uh, what is it? The Gay CI Alliance, California chapter, Granby chapter. Yeah, Marty's been keeping his end up with that. <laughs> yeah, he has. And I loved that show last Saturday on the news guy where, you know, the guy doesn't seemingly get it time and time again. And, you know, these people claim to be Christian identity. Well, Compare Swift all taught what Paul taught, which in the first chapter of Romans, that's the New Testament, that the homosexual is an abomination and worthy of death under God's, God's covenant law, says Paul. And uh, Marty doesn't have a problem with them. No, he has a problem with other Christian identity pastors. Round and round it goes. Yes, indeed. Uh, where it stops, nobody knows. Now, I've got something of a Hal Turner and an Artie Wheeler update, Jeremy. You know how a couple of weeks ago we were discussing how Turner had been released from the halfway house after spending a few months there and uh, he'd been released from jail prior to that. Now he's under, I think it's is it house arrest or house detention. That means that he's not allowed to leave his home for the next six months, unless it's for reason, medical reasons, um, uh, legal reasons, or, or to go to work, and, and for religious reasons. I thought that was very interesting. That means, you know, if he plays his cards card right, maybe he'll be able to have a communion service at 338 Rabbit Track Road. <laughs> yeah, but that'd be um, great. Any information you've got about Hal Turner would be... Uh would be helpful and beneficial because I've been out of the loop on the whole thing. And, and over on BNN, I've noticed they've been saying, oh, well, he's out, but no one really has any information. It's all speculation. Well, well I got this really from a, a letter that um, Bill White 
who's still in jail, wrote to Alex Linder, and Alex Linder posted it on VNN. It's been doing the rounds of the various white nationalist um, websites. And White said that Artie Wheeler, you know, who used to call into to, um, Hal's show, is actually in jail. Now, I didn't know that. I, I was completely unaware of that. I knew that, um, that Wheeler had, um, well, the FBI had raided Wheeler's home as a result of um, Hal Turner informing on him and grandmother Elizabeth, but I had no idea that he was actually in jail. Now, could you imagine sending poor, dear old Artie Wheeler to jail? What kind of a sociopath monster would do such a thing like that? Because I'm sure you used to listen to Hal Turner's show, and pretty much every week Wheeler would ring up and, you know, he'd, he'd speak with Hal, and, you know, Hal would go, oh, Artie Wheeler, great to have you on the show, and Grandmother Elizabeth would get on, and Turner would say, oh, I, I, she would say, I love you, Hal, and he would say, I love you, Grandmother Elizabeth, and he apparently went round to to their place and, you know, broke bread with them. But all the time he was setting them up for a fall, that dear old couple. Now, now I know that Artie Wheeler had some, had some ideas, some views that may, maybe have been on the little eccentric side and he had some extreme views. But so what? He's entitled to have extreme views. I mean, pro-abortionists have the most extreme views, of, views at all. and they're, they're not in jail. They're allowed to walk the streets free. So why can't poor old Artie Wheeler? But just to think of Hal Turner just setting them up so he could send them to jail. But it gets worse than that. I mean, Turner was even prepared to go even further than that. I, I, I read a quote recently from Turner where he said, this is when he was still doing his radio show, and he said, look, for anyone out there who's suffering from a terminal illness and who wants to go out with a quote-unquote bang, um, call me or, or, or email me and we'll organise something. What he was asking for was for people who were dying of cancer to contact him so he could arrange for them to kill you know, Mexicans or Jews or judges or something. But of course he wouldn't have actually got them to go through with that. What he would, be do, what he would do would dob them in, you know, rat on them to, to the FBI. So Turner was even prepared to send the terminally ill to jail. You know, imagine it's bad enough being in jail you know, unjustly in the first place, Jeremy. But could you imagine if you're dying cancer, having to spend, you know, your last few, few, few months or whatever, however long you had to live in jail? So Turner was prepared to do that. But I mean, there's, but that's not that's not the cherry on the on the putrid cake, the rotten cake that is Hal Turner. Wait till you hear this. Uh, a reporter asked him recently, um, what he what Turner would like to do once he has no um, legal restrictions, once he's free to come and go as he pleases. And you know what he said? He said, I'd like to be a TV commentator. Now, in order for him to be a TV commentator, he has to get in bed with the Jews because there's no way he's going to get on mainstream TV unless, you know, he, he, he sucks up to the Jude. And, and, and he's not going to get on TV and say things like, you know, six million more and, you know, savage, negro, beast. Absolutely no way. What he'll do, he'll go the way of that that buffoon who used to be in the KKK, John Lee Clary, I think his name is, a complete oaf, just total doofus. And he goes around, you know, denouncing racists and how bad, you know, the evil white racist community is. And Hal Turner wants to, will do exactly the same thing. So for all you people out there, all you cataclysmically stupid people who think that, you know, Hal Turner can be um, rehabilitated, that there's still hope for Hal Turner, that, you know, he can be a a credit to the, the white nationalist community once again, you are out of your minds. And uh, 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 something very pertinent Bill White said in his letter, Jeremy, he said that um, all of these FBI informants to a man have, have ended up in jail. They're either still in jail or they've just been released from jail. So all you informers out there who want to, you know, who, who want to rat 
on your race, you know, the, the white nationalist community, you know, behold your fate, behold your future. And, and, and for me, again, the bottom line of, about all of this, Jeremy, isn't whether Hal Turner should have gone to jail or not. The fact was he is a race traitor, still is a race traitor, will be a race traitor in the future. And, I mean, that is the unpardonable sin. Yeah. In fact, overlaid within Scripture, I mean, Hal Turner could be considered as a Judas type. Because Hal Turner did exactly, at least in my opinion, the same exact thing that Judas Iscariot did. And he made a deal with the devil, who was, was the government of his time, to betray people, to turn over innocent people. And for Judas Iscariot, it was Jesus Christ. And after the fact, even though he may have repented or whatever, you know, it was too late. And that's the whole point. The Jew chewed him up. When he threw the gold back at the temple and threw it back at him, they were like, we don't want it. It's blood money. And that's a lesson I think a lot of people in white nationalism need to learn. First, that the agent provocateur does just that, that the name is, to provoke. And that's exactly what Hal Turner's job in the FBI as an informant was to do, was to provoke people that he himself would not do. So a lot of people you see claiming to be white nationalism, saying they want the death of every race or they want the death of specific judges, that should already be a red flag. And secondary to that is, is my point about Judas, that you can never make a deal with the government and have it turn good. You turn you, Every movie, every theological work, no matter what it is, and anybody's dealing with the devil, the devil will always betray him. Yeah, it, that's so true. It really is all about, you know, doing a deal with the devil, isn't it? Uh, and Hal Turner hasn't repented. Uh, he hasn't regretted a single thing that he's done. The guy's a sociopath. In order to be able to send poor old people or a poor old Artie Wheeler to jail and to be, even be prepared to send the terminally ill to jail, I mean, you, you have to be... You can't have a soul. I mean, how could you do that to any anybody to set those poor people up and have the FBI raid their property poor old grandmother Elizabeth tied up and on the floor for about three hours and, and you know pretending all along that you were their friends the guy is an absolute monster people have nothing to do with him just stay the hell away from hell you know and hell you can go to hell yeah, that's a good point because I, that's what I said to uh, Lloyd Davies and several other people. Hal Turner is that type of person that even if he came back, he could do that, and he could fool a bunch more people. When I listened to the, to the uh, Hal Turner show, I always looked forward to Artie's phone calls. He was one of the turning points, you know, of when it you know, the monotony that was Hal Turner. Hal Turner was a really good speaker, but Artie's calls were always some of the most entertaining things. And that's a good point as well, is that these agent provocateurs or anybody who's willing to break bread with Zog or get in you know, bed with Satan, they don't, they're not a respecter of anybody. They don't care if it comes down to the children or, or somebody's grandmother or any of those things. And so you, know, you raise a valid point about that as well, is that, how, that that's been my fear from day one, and that's why I pointed it out, is that Hal Turner could come back and there'd be a small click. Some would, would tune in for the shock value just to hear the conspiracy stuff, and there'd be new people who come on and would actually take him as legit, even with what he's done. The same could be said of, of Glenn Miller. Of course, we don't know all the points, but a lot of people make deals with the government that I think they shouldn't, and they're able to actually come back. They're not blacklisted. Whereas the Negro community, for example, they have a real problem with house niggers, and they'll mark somebody as being a house nigger like Obama, and once they decide they're a house nigger, their racial solidarity says, screw them, they're blacklisted. I think we should do the same as white nationalists. So, so the... I've often heard that expression, house nigger. I didn't really know what it m meant. So, so it means 
a, neg- a, a traitor nigger. Is that, is that what it means? Well, at its original inception, at least here in the South, there were two forms of slavery. Basically, there were your field workers and, and the ones who worked out in the field. And those that worked in the field were pretty much, they had no education at all. But the ones that could speak, the ones that could, you know, cook, the ones that could do things like that here in the South made it to be known as house niggers and they could work inside the house. They were the ones like in Gone with the Wind who would usually tend to the babies or mop the floors like Junebug and Cricket and so forth. But now, you know, 200 years later, the Negro has a negative connotation to that. And so anybody like Ross Boss or, or, or Obama or anybody they feel isn't black enough gets termed either a Uncle Tom and or a house nigger. Oh, right. Oh, that's very interesting, because I know they call Obama the long-legged Mac daddy, that, um, that black preacher. What's his name? Um, Jesse Jackson? Uh, no, 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 that other, other guy, that guy who speaks out. He, hate, he actually likes white people. He wants white people to take over. Oh, Pastor uh, Manning. His name? Yes, that's the one. Pastor Manning, that's the one. He, he, he has a site called Atlar or something like that, and he, he does videos and podcasts. Yeah, he... Um, um, I wouldn't call him a nigger. I'd only call him a black guy. So at least he has some decency about him. Yeah, he he cannot stand Obama, and he, he's constantly um, harping about the fact that um, Obama's Obama wasn't born in this, in your country. He's born in I think Kenya. Yeah, and that's a good point. Is right in the beginning. When he became elected, you know, there were a lot of people saying, "Show me the birth certificate." Here it is, two weeks away, and he still hasn't provided a valid birth certificate. But what was ironic and telling was all the constitutionalists were bringing that up, and the media turned around and they were like, "Oh, well, it doesn't really say that you must be naturally citizen-born." But the way the Constitution is written, it's written so that not only are American presidents supposed to be born in the United States of America, but that they must be born of two parents who are both also born in America. So not only would, would Obama be a not constitutional president based on the fact that he wasn't, but he would be disqualified based on the fact that his father wasn't as well. And it's also interesting how a lot of people say that um, nobody has been able to come forward and say that they knew Obama when he was in university. They, they never met him. They, they never saw him do anything there. So, so it seems that some of these academic credentials could be bogus. Yeah, and it's kind of the same exact thing with, with uh, Martin Luther, Martin Lucifer Kuhn over here, because a lot of these people want to attribute acts to him that almost always turn out to be plagiarism. It was almost, I mean, it seemingly is like Martin Lucifer Kuhn was one of the tools that the Jew used, and none of his credentials were really legit, even down to the plagiarization of the name Martin Luther when his name was Michael King. Well, they say the similar sorts of things about um, Einstein, another revered hero of the left, and uh, they say that uh, he pinched his uh, famous um, E equals MC squared theory from a, um, an Italian physicist who, 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 who wrote about it some years prior. So everything, he, he was a plagiarist himself. Yeah, I believe that. And that kind of ties perfectly in what we were discussing, you know, last week with Jesus Christ, at least in the book of Revelation, is considered the living word and in the beginning of John's gospel. And as such, everything does stem from that. And so there is plagiarism and there, you know, there's our muse. The Christian's muse is the Bible, is the word of God. And the Jew's muse would be essentially taking that plagiarism 
plagiarizing it, perverting it, and spitting it back out as something that it doesn't really represent. And I've heard that as well, that Einstein, when he worked at the patent office, actually found that, and like most Jews, went ahead and patent, patented E equals MC squares, but it wasn't even his formula. Now, Jeremy, last week I, I wanted to talk about um, something I, I think is very important, and that is the most important thing we ought to believe in, being Christians. But I didn't give it, get a chance, so um, I thought before we get into our main topic today, we might have a little look at that. Would that be all right? Yes, please do. Okay. Uh, well, we start off in Numbers chapter 13. Uh, verse, and This is reading from verse 30. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it. They're talking about the promised land here. For we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Now what had happened here was that Moses had sent a group of Israelite men to go and spy out the land in the promised land, uh, which, which Yahweh had promised them. But uh, when, when they got there, they found the place was just overrun by these, you know, um, children of the fallen angels, these people like um, Goliath, you know, huge stature, and, you know, just would have killed them just by look at, looking at them. And um, in Numbers chapter 14, we continue. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, which are of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it, it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only, only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. That's a crucial verse there, a crucial, crucial part of the last verse. Fear them not. You know, out of all of the, there were 600,000 men that were of 20 years or older um, who were wandering the desert wilderness before the, the Israelites went into the promised land. And out of those 600,000 men, Jeremy, guess how many made it into the promised land? Oh, a fr 10%. Two. <laughs> Joshua and Caleb. Yeah. Joshua and Caleb were, were the only men out of those, that, that 600,000. I mean, there were, there were men, you know, below that age. They, they were allowed to go in. But 20 years and older, out of those 600,000 men, Joshua and Caleb were the only ones who made it into the Promised Land. Not even Moses made it into the Promised Land because he exercised some, 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 a, a, a severe lack of faith in, in one instance during the wilderness sojourn. But, but the point of the story is, in order to make it into the promised land, we must be confident, we must believe that we're going to make it into the promised land. That, that regardless of you know, how grim and how terrible and apocalyptic 
you know, apocalyptic things might, might seem to us that, you know, with Yahweh's help, you know, with faith in him leading us and guiding us and, you know, filling us with his power and protecting us, we can make it. And this is, a, this is the most important thing that we can believe in, is to believe that, you know, Yahweh wants us to be in the kingdom even more than um, we want to be in the kingdom. And there's a, there's a wonderful verse, wonderful um, account in the, in the book of Matthew, um, chapter 20, 23, and uh, we'll take it up, this is Christ and the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Then he, Jesus, got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Now, you look at that account, and you, you think to yourself, oh, weren't those disciples, you know, so faithless? But I suppose if you and I were in that situation, we'd have, we would have probably, you know, felt exactly the same way. I mean, in the natural sense, Jeremy, they had every reason to... To be, to be scared, to be worried that their lives are in danger. But, but, and there was Christ, you know, sleeping like a baby in the boat and they had to go and wake him up and he got up and he, he calmed, the, he, he, he calmed the, the, the terrible storm. Everything quietened down after that instantly. And it seems to me that this is going to be the situation when Yahweh returns. We're going to be, the world is going to be in such a state of disarray, you know, fighting, everything breaking down, the food chain, you know, society, there'll be no more economic system any, anymore, we'll be on the, you know, all these disasters will be occurring all over the place, you know, great earthquakes and, new, you know, poised for the nuclear war. Um, but yet the Bible says, I, I think the attitude that Christ wanted, wanted the disciples to have in the boat is the same attitude he wants us to have in, in, in the, the terrible times we're in now and the even worse times that are, that are to... That, that you know lay ahead of us he wants us to believe that um no matter what happens he's got everything in control and he's going to come back and he's going to stop everything he's going to quieten the storm but until that point we have to believe that he's going to do that and that um you know we must trust in him right to the end we must believe that we're going to make it you know to to, to yahweh's return and even if we die in, in the meantime, that's okay as long as we die believing that we're going to make it into the promised land. But it's so important that the most important thing we, we, can, we can do is to believe that we're going to make it into the kingdom and not doubt that Yahweh wants us to be in the kingdom. Yeah, with that, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, there are several instances, but there was one instance in one of the Gospels where a, uh, a woman, an Israelite woman, was so sick and so ill that when she heard Jesus Christ was in town, she went to go see him and said that if she could touch just the hem of his garment, she would be made whole. And Jesus Christ essentially said, thy faith has made you whole. And time and time again, he would teach that, that through faith, we have, you know, we have the ability to do even greater things. But that all things must be done in, in faith as well. For the example that Paul and Peter and some of the latter apostles give as well, is anything we ask or anything we pray, we must pray believing that Yahweh God can give it. Otherwise, praying, not believing, and having no faith is essentially blowing hot air at God. Well, as we we mentioned last week, faith is the only um, currency that Yahweh accepts in the kingdom. And the Bible says without faith it is impossible to please him. It doesn't matter, you know, how, how much we go around, sacrifice, how much we sacrifice in our lives, you know, how, if we get thrown in jail for calling the Jews, you know, the, the spawn of Satan. It doesn't matter, you know, how faithfully we preach the Christian identity message. If we don't exercise faith in our lives and, and, and you know, love in our lives, then... then 
we haven't got a hope of making it into the kingdom because Yahweh wants us... Because when Yahweh returns, that's how we're going to get things done. We're going to exercise faith and faith is going to work miracles. We'll be able, literally be able to move mountains just by telling the mountain to, to, to lift itself up and go, go you know, dump itself in the ocean. And so Yahweh wants to see that he wants to see that before he hands over the family business to us, that we can you know run it, that we can work in some, we can work in the mailroom, we can do this, we can do that, and that we have at least a little bit of faith to be able to to work in that business and and, and to work in it well. Yeah, that's actually you know that's extremely important as well, I believe, because you know that's why Paul and and certain of the latter apostles would say that a pastor should be married and or the husband of one wife and so forth is that we need to be exercised within a lot of that. And faith is one such example of that because in both camps, Judeo-Christianity and Christian identity, there is a form of faithlessness. On the CI camp, it's those who want to come along and say, well, all Israel saved, meaning I don't have to do anything. Life's no different for me. And they swill their beers and they live their debaucherous lifestyles. And in the Judeo-Christian camp, it's mostly those who say, well, the Old Testament and the Bible, even Jesus was a Jew. And, and it's a book of the history of the Jews, so it has nothing to do with me. And then they don't really have faith. They have their own little belief. But you're right. I mean, if you think about what wise King Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep his commandments, that's the whole duty of man. And that word fear, meaning reverence, should lead you to have faith, you know, in his law and in his word. And like one of the verses I covered last week on Desert Island Verses is that, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, where Jesus Christ says the law is not done away with. Those who teach the law is done away with are the least in the kingdom, but there's still a million and one Judeo-Christians out there who all say, hey, Jesus Christ did away with the law at his sacrifice. Well, it all comes down to faith, isn't it? Does, doesn't it? And you look at all of the times where Christ rebuked the disciples for not done putting their trust in him, for not having faith. A yield little faith crops up many times in the Gospels. And also fear not, you know, have confidence, fear not. You know, even in circumstances where they had every right to fear, they, they weren't to fear because God is in control, in command of those circumstances. God, you know, made us, all we are is just animated dust, dust that he created in order to have a bit of, you know, loving, you know, faithful, obedient company. So, so, Everything, everything, it all matter. Everything that we can see, hear, smell, touch, taste is, is in Yahweh's control. It's something he created and he can, you know, get rid of it any time he, he wants. You know, it was Yahweh who created the, the laws of physics and sent the, the Bible talks about the, you know, the various heavenly bodies, you know, spinning on their courses. You know, he created the stars. And so to not have faith in him, somebody that possesses infinite power and has Infinite knowledge is a terrible insult to Yahweh. That's why having faith in him is so important. Yeah, exactly. And I'm glad you brought up the aspect of weather as well, is because, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, I uh, preached abomination of desolation. And in that, I proved that Yahweh God specifically controls the quote-unquote whirlwind when it comes to tornadoes and hurricanes and so forth. And so in April of 2010, when I was in Washington, a, a tornado hit Brooks. And it wiped out 80% of Brooks just about two years ago. It literally came down the street that we live in, and it jumped over our house. It hit our neighbor. It hit everybody on our street. But it jumped over ours. And naturally, tornadoes and hurricanes and thing, things like that can be really, you know, kind of mysterious. 
when they happen. But I often look back in that in retrospect, and, and I wonder if it's just the acknowledgement of knowing who controls the weather as to why our house was spared and no one else's was, because it was directly on that line, and the tornado just went right up over the house and landed on the other side and kept going. So, I mean, praise God, but that's one little superficial example I could give. Well, what a great, that's a marvelous example. Gee, what a wonderful testimony of Yahweh's divine protection. I mean, we must do a show one of these days about um, how Yahweh protects us and, you know, go over various instances in our past where Yahweh's, you know, stepped in and saved us from, you know, inadvertently killing ourselves for your stupid actions and things. And uh, But, um, oh, oh, that's a wonderful testimony. So so when that happened, what, you're on your knees in your living room praying like you'd never prayed before? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember being in Washington State and feeling the sense of helplessness because we were living up there at the time. It was a temporary thing. We were up there, and we, we had a certain amount of time to kill before we came back here. And, yeah, that's exactly what we did was as a family, we prayed while it was going on. My parents were you know, here because they live in the same state, and they contacted me. But it, it is a testimony because when we came back, Half of our neighbors were gone. There were all sorts of stray animals running around because people's houses literally got knocked over in the tornado, and they had no other options but to leave. A lot of them rebuilt, and this was only about about two years ago, but a lot of them rebuilt, and FEMA came in and did all sorts of other things. But it was amazing how, like, God does control the whirlwind, and God controls the weather. And this is, like, actually the second time in the last decade that something similar to that has happened, but... You know, God does protect his own, and I think that's what it is, is faith, is just recognizing the helplessness. We were glad we weren't here, but had we even been here, we would have been spared where a lot of other people weren't. And so that's kind of an interesting testimony. So so you went home not knowing whether your house was still standing or not? No, not really knowing. It took my parents. They couldn't even get to Brooks because they live like over two hours away from me. And so by the time they actually drove over here, all of the destruction had to be cleared out. And so from Cayeta County all the way to like Henry County, almost to Fulton County, to the north side of Atlanta, this tornado came through and it just wiped out so much stuff. And by the time, yeah, by the time we came back, we had no real idea of knowing if the house would even be here or not. And it's weird, too, because out of that actually came a good thing because one of the neighborhood dogs kind of adopted us, and he's lived here ever since. He's been here like two years, and he kind of comes and goes as he wants. But, you know, we we never had a dog before that. And through the tornado and somebody moving away in some weird, ironic way, Yahweh provided us with a really good watchdog. So we're happy for that because he'll bark when it, when anybody comes around. And down here in the south, Literally, still, to this day, they use the chain gang. Here in the state of Georgia, here where we live, in Brooks even, every week, literally weekly, if not monthly, in the slow months, the streets will be covered in convicts in orange suits walking around. And time and time again, a lot of them will break out or they'll have their buddy drive down the road and they'll hop in their car because, you know, Georgia wants to use that type of – I guess some states – Pretty much all states use that. But here in the Deep South, it's like it was 100 years ago where they still have them cleaning up the side of the road and, and whacking down weeds, and, and, and they'll do it for residential neighborhoods even. So so that's one thing that you're going to kind of always have to be careful. And when one of those guys come and they go a little too far on the property line with their weed eaters, that's when the dog will go off and bark. So it's been a blessing to have him. So you've got your own poopy dog, guy. Eh? 
<laughs> Pretty much, but he's not demonic and possessed like Poopy Dog is, and he doesn't have his own sock puppet. <laughs> he's like always, Poopy. He, he, he doesn't have guy with the dark eyes. <laughs> exactly. But it was one of those dogs that, you know, and those are the best animals anyway, are the ones that choose you, that you don't actually go looking for, but that God brings you. But a lot of times, on the, on the same token, you've got to be careful when it comes to cats. Because a lot of cats are of the devil, you know, and they were worshipped in ancient Egypt, and they got attitude and believed they should be reverenced. So a lot of these cats you've got to be weary of if you let them in their house. Because even if a cat claims you, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good thing. I'm just kidding, of course. Yeah, I've never, I've never really been into cats. So I, I love dogs because cats want to sort of lord it over you, but dogs want to be your buddy. And I, I just love dogs. They're just so adorable, aren't they, really, the way that they're so faithful and, you know. Just exactly. So In 5,000, 6,000 years, we still, man at least, has never really fully domesticated the cat. And the cat loves reminding you of that because they really will survive without you. A dog could die if you don't feed it. <laughs> but a cat cat doesn't care you stop feeding it it'll just walk down the road and find somewhere else <laughs> and you know what they say jeremy um dog is god spelled backwards yeah 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 that's true i mean hey the the dog is man's best friend you know yeah or, i think yahweh did some, something symbolic with, with dog even though dogs get a kind of a bad rap in scripture i mean you know, they, they really aren't all that bad. Yeah, they are unclean clean animals, but, I, I mean, they, they'll just love you unconditionally, won't they? A good dog will. Yeah, and they're really, they are. I mean, unless you have guinea hens, peacocks, or, or you know, roost tu- turkeys of some sort, geese, they make the best watchdog there is, you know. Well, the last dog I had was my sister's dog. I inherited it. It was a, it was a, um, it was a shit to, um, uh, Maltese Terrier Cross. It was a Mamsa, but it wasn't a Mamsa criminal. But oh, it was just a beautiful little dog. Just a lovely dog to have around. Yeah, and that's the beauty of it. You know, is no, nothing that man can do, nothing that man can photograph or paint or capture. And I'm talking Rembrandt, I'm talking Michelangelo, Gustave Doré, whoever you want to throw in the mix. None of these William Bogeroux? Huh? William Bogeroux? Yeah, exactly. None you of know, these the guy, people. The guy that, yeah, sorry, I shouldn't have interrupted. Keep going. No, no, you're right. I mean, the depth and the quality. I was even commenting on that the other day, how before the age of the television and the Internet, you know, the white Anglo-Saxon artists, wow. I mean, what a difference from today's society, some of the stuff that they could capture during the Renaissance era. But my whole point in that was essentially that none of these things and the beauty that man can, can bring forth is as beautiful as God's simplicity, God's photograph, looking at you know the alpine peaks or the, the, the black forest or any of these things that God's created, even down to his animals. And the loyalty that certain animals will show their masters, you know, that's beautiful. Well, you walk down a leafy street on a spring afternoon, sunny spring afternoon, you won't see any painting, any sculpture, any movie, any, anything created by man that's as beautiful and as glorious as that. Good point. And so with that, we should go ahead and, and dive into our Desert Island verses. I've got my five written down well, and ready. Well, well, Jeremy, before we do that, I, I thought we're at the top of the hour and we'll probably be spend a little time on this. Maybe if there are any callers who want to ring in for a few minutes and say hello or abuse us for, um, you know, saying unkind things about uh, Rocky O'Kay Sahada, maybe um, they, they might want to call in. That's a good good advice. So if anybody wants to call in 
now is the time to do so, especially if you have uh, Desert Island verses to share or even one verse that you might, you know, enjoy or hold, you know, kind of close to your heart or whatever that gives you comfort or strength. Now would be the time to do so because we are at the top of the hour. And I, I enjoy this, the premise of this, because when it's all said and done, you know, what we're providing people, at least the milk toast or new to, those new to Christian identity, are some pivotal verses that are essential to Christian identity doctrine. And in doing this, you know, we're giving a primer, if you will, in a lot of ways that isn't available in some of the longer studies. And and covering verses like we did last week where we touched upon Amos, you only have we known among the, the uh, all families or nations or races of the earth, we're arming new Christians with the uh, tools, if you will, or the ability to debunk their local pastor. And that in and of itself is the only true form of power. In fact, that's what brought me into Christian identity in the first place is having the ability to use the King James Bible or the Bible that even the Judeo-Christians use against them. That's true power in a lot of ways because people who profess to believe in the Bible usually will have to take a second look at what you're saying. And you can really tell who has a respect for the Bible in that opinion as well. Is the truly Bible, the true Bible believer who really is raised to have respect and reverence for the Word of God Usually you can show them these verses that we're bringing up and discussing, and they'll adjust their, the their mindset or their theological position in that. And some of them will just say, well, I don't care what the Bible says. And in essence, that's the dividing of the tares and the wheat and the traditionalist from the theologist. Well, the Bible says that it, it is spiritually discerned. It's not discerned with the understanding so much, but with the spirit. Uh, a scripture that we keep bringing up time and time again. You know, yeah, uh, the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth, and of course, the the Word is the truth. But we can't we can't plummet steps without um, the Spirit's help. There's just no way of doing that. Yeah, and thank God for that, because you know, through it all, the sons of the devil truly are locked underneath us. You know, time and time again, the apostles and the disciples would come to Jesus Christ. And they would marvel at the things he'd done. And he would say, you know, you can do greater things. And for people like us, you know, the natural men or whatever, we, we look at that and it seems impossible. How can we give eyesight to the blind? How can we give hearing to the deaf and so forth? And, of course, Jesus Christ was speaking in a spiritual sense. And so while he could give somebody physically the ability to see or the ability to hear, which was proof and testimony that he was God in the flesh anyway, he attributed the act of doing those same things on a spiritual level as greater, and, in a, and they truly are greater in that regard. You know, it doesn't matter if you have the full ability to see with your eyes. What matters is if you have the ab full ability to see with your spirit. Well, even if you were to be healed, of, uh, miraculously healed, um, just because you're miraculously healed doesn't mean you're going to make it into the kingdom. And I mean, the eternal life is the one that really matters. So that, that needs to be our, our focus. And, you know, anything else that, um, you know, happens in our lives is just a mere bonus. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the call is out. If anybody wants to call in, now would be the time to do as such as well. Jeremy, but, I've been meaning to ask you, I hope I'm not crying here. If I'm sipping out of line, just tell me to shut up and I will. Your, your brother Ron, he's the admin of your forum, is he not? Sure. Sure, Ron. So, so and in all these years, three years now, Martin Lynch has been going on trying to attribute a false name to him. <laughs> yeah. 
So he's the one. He's he's the one. Marty reckons is some sort of Hispanic guy or something. Yeah, yeah. He says he's a Mexican, which is is quite ironic <laughs> in a lot in a lot of ways because you know I don't know too many Mexicans who who support even Christianity. I mean, they may support Catholicism, but there's not too many Protestants. Well, the, the reason I bring this up is that did you? He's obviously CI. So did you witness to him? Did he came? Come to come to Yahweh as a result of your your testimony. What what was the deal there? If you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it was it was in studying Proverbs three five and seven, and witnessing to him about the strange woman, quote unquote, that uh, Solomon wrote about. And Solomon would be the one king who would know that better than anyone else, because even though Jesus Christ would say, among all the kings of men, there was none wiser than Solomon. You know, a lot of people in Christian identity forget that Solomon angered Yahweh God, and how he angered him was by going after all these strange wives, quote-unquote, or foreign, no Greek wives, wives of the other races. And later on in Solomon's reign as king, he wrote the Proverbs. And what he wrote in 3, 5, and 7 were admonitions against the loose woman, the strange woman, and what would happen from that. And one of the curses of that is that your fountains will be dispersed abroad, you know, quote-unquote, metaphorically, your seed, and many other things. And so, yeah, it's weird to me how in my intermediate family I'm either loved and or completely hated. There is no gray area. Those who are really Bible believers, really who can't debate me, have a lot of respect for me. And the rest of them say, well, oh, Pastor Visser's a cult leader. Everything he says is BS by default. And, of course, they never open their Bible. They just accept that position because it's good enough for them. Well, I suppose your poor parents must have groaned in agony when they found out that Ron had become one of these religious freaks too. Yeah, yeah. My, well, you know what? I've got to say, in a lot of ways, even though my father's got Masonic ties and, and my parents aren't really openly Christian, in a lot of ways maybe that was even a godsend too because as opposed to some people I know who have had Christianity or even white nationalist ideals forced down their throat to later rebel against, my parents were always pretty open about it. If I wanted to be a Christian or a pastor as a child, they were like pretty accepting and tolerant of that, actually. So it's kind of interesting in that regard, too. So they pretty much accepted on both ends, me becoming a CI pastor and even one of my older brothers becoming a homosexual. They're on both ends of this spectrum, they're pretty tolerant and liberal with allowing people to think for themselves. And thank God, because there's people in my extended family, like my in-laws and so forth, who want to see me locked up just based on how I think. And to me, there's very few people that are more dangerous to you than someone who wants to see you locked up just based on what you think about no crime at all and so you know there's good and bad in both i guess so your homosexual brother how does he respond to christian identity i haven't heard from him in 10 years and one of the things about that is the fact that he, the reason he won't contact me which is funny because i've never really bashed him outside of preaching against homosexuality no one really knows no one really knows if he is or isn't. It's kind of one of those things that we kind of think about because he never comes around anymore, and he hasn't called me in over 10 years. So there's something going on that doesn't really fit. Me and my brother were always pretty close until he got a divorce, and he's never been remarried and, it seeming, and seemingly has a lot of problems. But once upon a time, he actually was one of those who was racist and separatist and anti-gay, Growing up, pro-military, pro-macho, you know, macho, paintball, all that growing up. And then he ended up, you know, in his mid-30s, basically deciding he was 
probably going to become a homosexual, and that's pretty sad too. So it wasn't really my parents doing. What I'm saying is my parents accepted and tolerated me being a, a extremist, and they accepted him being a homosexual, but like you addressed at the beginning of the show, homosexuals never really contended with that. So if everyone in the family doesn't bend over backwards and be accepting and tolerant of his lifestyle, then he just simply doesn't come around. And that's kind of sad in a lot of ways because, you know, I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain, but I have less a problem with him than I believe he thinks I do because I don't know. I really don't know if he's gay. That's just speculation, and it's kind of sad that 10 years later no one really knows. But it's his well, you business. Should, you, should get, you should get Martin Lindstedt to sort it out. He'll, he'll be able to tell you if he's gay or not. Yeah, he does have gaydar. I heard that on one of his radio shows, and he was essentially chastising everybody in Christian identity who didn't have the gaydar, quote-unquote, he did. And apparently gaydar what? is a man's ability to sense whether another man has homosexual tendencies or not. And I was quite amazed in that, even going to Hollywood High School where, you know, probably 10% to 20% of my graduating class were fags. I'd never heard of any such thing called gaydar. Well, Marty's gaydar is in his trousers. Every time it detects a fag, he gets a stiffy. <laughs> I believe you're right, because when George TK calls in, he sure gets excited. He'll start stumbling or stuttering and get real jumpy. Thanks for the flowers, George. I think I'm out on else. <laughs> Gotta love it. I love the imposter, though. And, and, you know, the one thing is, like I said before, you know, and I learned it when I was a teenager, there really is no such thing as bad publicity. Let him talk. I love it, man. He goes on News Guy just last weekend, and the first thing he said once he was unmuted was, well, Visser, <laughs> I own him, man. He doesn't even realize it. Yeah, I'll never forget... You you had that interview he did with um, Jim Giles, didn't you? He, it was a two-part interview, and I think both interviews went for about three hours, and it was only at the end that um, Jim Giles turned around and called him a retard and said, you know, shut your ripping mouth, which is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. But, um, it, you know, he, he had a, here, he, here he was. He had a great opportunity to spread the word about Christian identity, and for, for the first in the first 10 seconds of the, the first interview we did with Giles, it was, you know, oh, this or this and uh, sci-fi favour, that. It was just the old shtick just all over again. I mean, the guy just can't help himself. He's just totally deranged. Yeah, down here in the dirty south, Marty's what we consider a repeater and or a mouth breather. He's one of those types of people that believes if he repeats the same lie over and over and over and over, that somehow or another, like the Jews do, someone will accept it as truth. But the reality is, is mastery and dominance of the English speech means relaying the same point five different ways, not repeating yourself. And that's, that's literacy. That's actually you know, having a command of the English language. When I do that, I get told that I change my stories and I'm a liar. But I'm saying the same exact thing a different way, which is how we're supposed to use the language. But... It's like Hitler says, and, and in fact, even Christ teaches that with their much words, they believe that people will accept, you know, lies and untruth. And so that's what I think they do. With a lot of words, you're actually supposed to be yay or nay and, and you know, let your opinion be known. Well, it all comes down to the spirit leading you, doesn't it? I mean, the, the spirit's going to guide you as to who's who and who's Jew. Um, you know, no, nobody, nobody who sincerely... The Yahweh is filled with the Spirit and is sincerely looking to obey Yahweh and to, to preach his gospel faithfully. He's going to wind up with Martin Lindstedt for any length of time. 
in fact, probably not at all. No, exactly, and that's probably the saddest thing to me, at least sitting over here, is the fact that he actually has to steal posts from mine and your forums and post them over on his forum in his own sock puppet accounts. And that's probably the saddest thing of all, is the fact that you know maybe if he would preach, he'd develop his own following, but no one really does. And so, like we were mentioning before, like the devil perverting the bloodline of God, or even the creation of God, the devil can't create. The, the devil can only take things that someone else has created, in the devil's case, God, and pervert it. And so our personal devil does the same exact thing. By adding a stream of blue kikishness, he opens the door for the kike to come in and, and harass true, true, true white nationalists. But again, the sincerest form of flattery is plagiarism. And so if he's out there trying to mimic you by writing a book and mimic me by holding shows or whatever, I say, good, let him go. He'll never achieve it because that's achieved through God and on our own works. I have never in all the years I've been CI seen a single person like Logan or like Marty come in based on the premise of destroying other people's ministries and have it become successful. It never will, just based on default, because that's all they center around. When you try to destroy other people and have no works of your own, you you don't go anywhere. It's interesting how Marty uses blue a blue font for those insertions he makes. Um, in, in, you know, he'll, he'll post something I've posted, and then he'll put these little blue filthy comments in between the various things I've written, and they'll be in blue font because, of course, blue is associated with pornography. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and 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 no one really understands that that's the whole point when they go over there well they think that's somebody like well jeremy visser posting over there and saying those things in that in that blue font but that's a good point it's actually more specifically predominantly geared towards the homosexual pornography community when it comes to the you know blue or the letter color blue might as well go to the blue oyster bar too you know Yes, him, him and George, they'd love that, wouldn't they? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Now, Jeremy, if we don't have any callers, do we, we don't have callers? No, no one on the line right now. But usually it's weird, All too, because right. the okay. show will go in, in fluxes. Sometimes it'll be really low, and then later towards the end it'll, it'll fill in, and, and that's usually when people want to call in anyway. So it's really... But it's probably, it starts at, sorry, yep. Oh, I was just saying, we've been doing pretty good with the calls, although we've had a few people call in with with varying opinions but it, it is refreshing to hear other people's you know opinions on what they think you can tell who's true and who isn't or those who are or genuine ci or aren't so you just kind of let them ramble yeah, you, can, you can pick it up in their voice i wouldn't mind it if people rang up to abuse us or to criticize us in some way as long as they didn't misrepresent themselves so when they start spouting just these little you know various cribs and drabs they've learned about christian identity online to to, to make out that they're ci when they're not i, I object to that i mean if you if you're not ci and you don't like ci and you want to speak to us fine we'll, we'll talk to you for a while you know as long as it, you know you're not going to be too abusive but if you're going to misrepresent yourself, don't call in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I hell for the for you know sake of brevity, I'd have Jesse Jackson on the show to debate theology, and it'd be a high downloaded show. That's you know in a lot of ways. But one thing you'd never see me do is go on a Child of the Devil show and talk about how we have a lot in common. So you know, I've actually met here in the South, not met or really associated with, but there's Rastafarians here in the South who are wiser to the Jew 
than a lot of whites give them credit for. And I'm not being an apologetist. I just think that's quite refreshing as well. That many Rastafarians know the difference between a white man and a Jew and know that miscegenation is a bad thing. Well, the average black man and black woman um, seems to know more about the Jew and seems to be more Jew-wise than the average white. Yeah, exactly. And sadly, a lot of them, the, the lesser educated ones, are the ones who can't differentiate the difference. And so they're the ones who walk around saying, whitey owes me everything, because they really haven't studied out the difference of you know, who was behind the slave trade or who's behind bankery and who's behind all of those things. And it should be pointed out that the term slave comes from the Slavic people, because the Saxons, in general, were the very first slaves you know, to be. And perhaps someday we should bring forth a study on biblical slavery because at least indentured servantness and so forth, these are things that are sanctioned by God and his law for particular reasons. Now, now Jeremy, just, I just have to ask you about next week's show. We're going to talk about Halloween. It's all, so, so we're actually going to do it on Halloween Eve or ha- yeah. Halloween night. In your, yeah, okay. exactly. Exactly. Down here in the state of Georgia, they they change the days up. So you can go trick-or-treating on a day that isn't Halloween. I don't know why they do it, but for Halloween here, they'll pick a day, and it rarely is the 31st. So my kids will be able to actually go get candy from all the churches because down here they celebrate All Saints Day as opposed to All Hallows Eve. Oh, that's interesting. I um because Halloween's never taken on here. The, a couple of the supermarket chains have tried to introduce it in order to sell more lollies. Uh, lollies is our word for candy. You have candy, we have lollies. Same thing. It's all con- confectionery. But it's never taken off simply because it's never been a part of our culture here. So it's never gained any real traction. So all I know about Halloween is stuff that I've seen on on TV, American TV shows, and of course in in, in Hollywood horror movies. Okay, like John Carpenter's Halloween. That's what's going to make it quite interesting is because here in America, Halloween is a central holiday at least. I mean, it's not a federal holiday by any means, but Halloween is as big as Easter or Christmas and everything else. All right, okay. Because next week I'm going to ask you a few questions about Halloween because I'm curious about some aspects of it. So, all right, then we might as well dive into um, our Desert Island Verses today. And we're discussing our heavenly reward. Do you want to start off with the first verse? Sure. Actually, that would be great. And on the tail end of what we've been discussing tonight, the racial aspect of Christian identity, or just Christianity in general, my first Desert Island verse for this evening, in no particular order, would be found in the first epistle of Peter. And that would be the first epistle of Peter, chapter 2, verse 9. And I'll be reading from the Amplified, because I believe the Amplified King James actually renders this verse much better than the authorized King James. But in 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a dedicated nation, God's own purchased special people, that you may set forth the wonderful deeds and display the virtues, and perfections of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so the reason I think that a wonderful verse. It is. It is so great on so many levels because for those who want to come along and deny the racial aspect of the Bible, especially in the New Testament, here's Peter, one of the beloved apostles who sat at the feet of Christ, explaining straightforwardly that those who he's writing to and those whom Jesus Christ came for are a 
quote-unquote, King James Version now, a chosen generation, or genios, meaning race. That's why the uh, Amplified rendered this so much better. But also, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. All four of those are racial and in their core root. A royal priesthood, a holy nation means you're a holy race as well, and a peculiar people. And so it's a beautiful statement in, in that aspect because covering the flesh aspect as opposed to the spiritual aspect that we've been discussing lately. You know, you have to be that first and foremost. And this is something I've been discussing from our pulpit lately as well, is that many people within Christian identity miss the simplicity that is in Christ. A perfect example of that would be Mamzer and those who come along with the word Mamzer. But the point being is it also means bastard. And it must mean bastard first and foremost in its simplistic form because, of course, God doesn't approve of children being born out of wedlock. So unless we accept it at the first and foremost, or on the flesh-like level, we'll never understand the spiritual level. And Mamzer is one of those terms where it says, a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Most people in CI look at that and they say, see, it just means Mamzer. No, actually Strong's defines that as a child of a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. But that's just a side point. If we don't have it in the flesh, if we're not that chosen generation, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, or peculiar people then you can't be called out of darkness into his marvelous light, and you cannot inhabit the Holy Spirit that God does give you. So unless you're racially an Israelite, you will not become the quote-unquote spiritual Israelite. Well, what a fantastic verse you read there, Jeremy. Fantastic comment you made. That was, um, you, 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 you really articulated that beautifully. Um, and, and the key thing, I suppose, about that verse is that the Bible says we're kings and priests of royal priesthood now. It doesn't say you will be, but you are now. And even though we, we may not look anything like kings and priests or a royal, priest, a royal priesthood or, or what they're supposed to, like, supposed to look like, um, when we come into, when, when Yahweh returns and we take on, we, 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 you know, um, we're transformed in the twinkling of an eye and we're, you know, we, we dispose of this uh, mortal coil and put on it, the immortal coil will be seen to be what we really are, a royal priesthood, kings and priests, and we'll have the, the same kind of power, the same kind of benefits. And, uh, you know, isn't it a marvellous thing to, to be part of royalty? Yeah, it truly is a beautiful thing when you think about that. And it is exciting also to know that as Adamites, Israelites, or Jacobites, however you want to put it, as the white Anglo-Saxon people, not only do we have the spirit or breath of God within us that gives us, you know, our consciousness or the, you know, the law being written on our hearts so we know right from wrong, but also it's exciting to me to know that we had the same exact blood running through our veins that Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago. Well, the Bible says he's the first of many brethren. And, and, and it's not just, you know, it's just not a throwaway, throwaway line in Scripture. That's not some sort of, you know, you know, metaphorical exaggeration. That is the literal truth. We are the first of many brethren. Christ sees us as his, I mean, sorry, Yahweh sees us as his literal children. That's what we are. And when he tells us that we're, we're royalty, that we're priests and kings, that's exactly what we are. And he just wants to see that we can, you know, um, he wants us to go through, through the, the trials and tribulations of um, mortal life um, just so when we, you know, take on, when we take on immortality, our, our, the judgments we make, the decisions we make, will be tempted with the compassion and the understanding that we had when, that, that, that we, 
that we got when we were in our human form. Yeah, exactly. Because even Christ would come and he would rail against the Pharisees by saying they understood the letter of the law, many of them, but they never understood the spirit of how to apply it. And we see that within Christian identity today. Many people will come along and they're, they're scripture lawyers, just like the Pharisees of old. And we should know the Bible, but you know, knowing the morality behind it. It's one thing to know why God says certain people should be put to death, and it's another thing to relish in the actual act, not understanding why God does it. Knowing that God would have all come to repentance should tell you that God doesn't really enjoy violence. It's not one thing that he likes. And so many people come along and they're that type. Oh, they want to dwell in violence all the time. Well, that's not really the mindset of God. It's not the morality. A perfect example of that was with Mary, I believe. Because for all intents and purposes, according to the Mosaic Law, Mary should have been put to death being unwed and having become pregnant. You know, and that was even the scuffle back in the day. But Joseph, being a, you know, a virtuous man, put her away privately. And, and so, so while Joseph knew the letter of the law in that Mary should have been stoned and put to death, he understood the application of it. And so through his knowing the spirit of the law, he spared, and in essence, Jesus Christ came through Mary. Okay, well, my first Desert Island verse is from Revelation 21.4, and this is the Amplified Version again. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be anguish, sorrow and mourning, nor grief, nor pain any more. For the old conditions and the former order of things have passed away. Now, what a wonderful verse that is, telling us that um, all the pain, all the anguish you experience in this life, you know, the, the, the depression, the sense of defeat, the sense of, you know, you, you just don't have any purpose in life, you know, the impatience you feel, every negative emotion is going to be done away with, and you're only going to experience nothing but endless eternal joy yeah that's a beautiful verse too in that you know later in revelation death is personified he's capitalized because death is just another name for satan as well and so when satan is obliterated and satan's children like we discussed with obadiah 118 last week are finally obliterated it's a beautiful thing it's a restoration process it's essentially restoring Eden back to its initial state, which was paradise, where God walked with Adam and Eve. A lot of people miss that, I think, in that with through one man, sin entered into the world, and by sin, death. And so the devil's children have to be taken out of the way in order to be restored back to its initial state, because the devil took what was created and perverted it once more, and that resulted in the Canaanite. It's, it's hard to imagine just how, how good life would be without any of the negative things that we can experience, the emotions, the disappointments, the heartbreaks. But I suppose if you took the greatest day of your life, you know, the, the best time you ever had, whatever it is, and you multiplied that by you know, a couple of trillion times, then it might give you an inkling of just how wonderful it's going to be when Yahweh returns. I mean, it's just going to be just mind-bogglingly wonderful. Yeah, it is a great thing. And that, that's, I think, the difference between the humanistic mindset and the spiritual is for those people who were, you know, living in Sodom and Gomorrah and even Lot's wife who were looking back because that's where their heart was, it was a horrible thing to see a city full of faggots being destroyed because they could only see the flesh. But those in the spirit, like Lot, 
and Abraham, they understood that it needed to be, that certain things have to happen that way. And that, to me, is one of the greatest promises, I think, when we, we cover Habakkuk and we cover Zephaniah and many of the minor prophets that all discuss the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's that, that, that fire comes and it destroys it and everything is set back to the way God you know, initially wanted it. I don't think man really understands that because they fence lands, they claim lands theirs, they fight over land, wars are fought for land, and the Bible says the earth and the fullness thereof belong to Yahweh God anyway. So what's your second verse, Jeremy? My second verse for the evening is one that is essential, pivotal, and I don't believe we covered it last week, but it would be the infamous John 8.44. That is the Gospel of John, of course, where Jesus Christ is battling the beginning of John chapter 8 deals with Jesus Christ and the woman taken in adultery. And, of course, the Pharisees wanted to stone her, put her to death, and so forth, and he held out the stone and said, You without sin cast the first stone. But later on, the same Jews, quote-unquote, were giving Jesus Christ a lot of problems. They, they went through a long discourse. And in John 8, verse 44, he plainly says to the Jews in the King James, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. Now the beauty of this verse, of course, is almost every Christian identity pastor will use this, because it is proof and it is confirmation that there are sons of God and the sons of the devil, just like Jesus Christ taught in his parable of the tares and the wheat. But what he says is, the devil's children understand the lie. The lie to the devil's children is the truth because that's essentially what the devil is, is the father of lies. So while we as the children of light sit out here and a lot of times don't, aren't really turned on or appealed by fiction, the devil's children usually are. It also says that he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. Now, we in Christian identity know that Cain was the world's first murderer, according to 1 John's epistle, number three, uh, or chapter 3, verse 12. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, John, the same author of, of the gospel, says Cain was born of the wicked one. And so John 8:44 is fundamental and essential to dual seed line Christian identity for that aspect. Jesus Christ clearly tells the Jews that they are of their father, lowercase, not Yahweh, the devil, and the lust they will do. Of meaning ek ex in the Hebrew once again, just like in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, where it says Cain is of. It denounces origin. So in the original Hebrew, Jesus Christ straightforwardly says, you are born of the devil to the Jews in John 8, 44. Well, everything Satan does is geared towards stopping the sons of God or the, the, the physical sons of God from becoming the full sons of God, spiritual, spiritual sons of God as well, isn't it? Everything he, he, he does is to discourage us from um, going on with Christian identity, from you know, loving our brethren, from um, you know, studying the word and just uh, getting involved in things. So it's all, it's all to discourage people away from, from becoming sons of God, the people who have the potential to be the sons and daughters of the living God and to, to stop them from becoming the sons and the daughters of the living God. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we find the detractor within Christian identity going to every single one of these shows, tonight, Wednesday night, no exception, there's three of us on, 
and going to these shows and saying, I don't care what you mamsers do, quote-unquote, yet they're the only ones that care. Someone who truly doesn't care is like me. When Marty does a show, I'm off fishing. I'm off spending time with my kids. I'm going out to eat and enjoying life. But their whole point is that, there is to defile and or, you know, uh, destroy. I've often wondered that since we started doing these shows, Obadiah, why the enemy is so threatened by it, and that's the reason why. Now they have to step up their game. So because you're writing a book, well, so is uh, Rabbi Samuelson going to write a book. And so that's the whole point. It, it's, it's a threat to, to their own tradition. And Christ taught no different. With tradition, man makes null the word of God. Yes, well, well Marty's whole reason for being is to distract and to discourage us, to try and you know, get our mind off the game and to discourage us from continuing on with the game. But it's not going to work. No, of course not. That's, that's the bigger irony of all, is that if anybody out there, anybody, and I don't care who you are, if you think you're going to sway somebody's religious belief, you know, you're already on the wrong path from point in case. The only way to even do that is to have a better premise. And the only way to have a better premise is to be able to debate somebody on a theological premise, at least if you're a Bible-believing Christian. But coming along, throwing out a straw man like the Pharisees did Christ, saying, oh, he picked corn on the Sabbath, or he made himself God, or any of these other things, of course it's not going to come to stand, because it just is circular reasoning. It's somebody trying to tear down somebody who they obviously know is already perceived as a threat and better than they are. And one thing I see all of these bashers, Paul bashers and those in, in, in white nationalism who want to attack us, why they claim the title, have in common is that they attack Murray, they attack Pete Peters, and they attack even Swift and Comperay, because they're the most popular and they have nothing of their own. Jeremy, did you ever think in even your wildest imagination that one day you'd be doing a, a, a regular podcast with, a, with an Aussie guy? No, but I love it. And that's, that's, you know, that's the beauty of it is that it covers two different poles of this earth. You know, And I think it's edifying in that regard that people should know that Christian identity is a global belief system. You, know, you don't have to follow one particular dogma or not. It really boils down to what I've covered so far in these first two verses, and you have as well, is the recognition of who you are, a son of God. That's what identity means, is being able to identify the sons of the devil and the sons of, of God. Now, Judeo-Christianity will come right along and say, well, we're all God's children. But Christ de would debate that. Christ did debate that many times. And the Pharisees would say that. In fact, right here in John chapter 8, they would say, we be Abraham's seed. And Jesus Christ would retort by saying, if you be Abraham's seed, you would do the work of Abraham. Abraham knew the law. He followed the law. But the devil is the lawless one. And his ultimate goal is that, dissension, destruction, and or perversion. And usually it's done under the guise of saying, well, you can fudge here. You can get by here. And the whole symbology of the original sin is that teaching that you cannot sin and get by with it. If God says, don't touch of this tree... Do not touch of that tree. There's absolutely no way you can partake and or touch of a particular tree without it being an offense to you. Okay, now my second Desert Island verse, and for people who might, might have just tuned in, uh, just listened in, um, we're discussing verses to do with our heavenly reward, what's in store for us when Yahweh returns. And I'm reading from the book of Enoch. Now, I think this is called chapter 108. Um, they haven't... They haven't um, uh, itemize the verses in this so I'm not quite sure how that works maybe you, you might be able to give some background info on that later on but anyway, anyway I think this is from, I think this is from Enoch 108 <clears throat> pardon me 
And I will bring forth in shining light those who have loved my holy name. And I will seat each on the throne of his honour. And they shall be resplendent for times without number. For righteousness is the judgment of God. For to the faithful he will give faithfulness in the, habita in the habitation of upright paths. And they shall see those who were born in darkness led into darkness, while the righteous shall be resplendent. And the sinners shall cry aloud and see them resplendent. And they indeed will go where days and seasons are prescribed for them. So that's talking about, <clears throat> pardon me, how the Bible talks about how um, Yahweh is the father of lights. And we're going to take on that, that sort of ethereal, you know, uh, a, you know, glowing, glowing sort of appearance. We'll, we'll be like lights ourselves. It'll just be that wonderful Shekinah glory about us, that wonderful glow. So not only are we going to, you know, not only are we going to wipe every tear from our eyes and death note shall be no more, we'll live just this eternal, endless, joyful existence. We're going to look pretty snazzy as well. Yeah, once we're all in our spiritual bodies, that'll be a beautiful thing. And I love the writings of Enoch for that very purpose. I believe that Enoch was probably one of our better prophets. And, of course, we know he was quoted by Peter in Second Peter. He was even quoted by Christ as well, giving him validity. But, you know, Enoch's walk is something that shouldn't be taken lightly. And going back to what I was discussing before, a lot of the people within, you know, even calling themselves Christian identity, there's kind of two camps in that. There's those that follow the Gnostic text and those that will accept the Testament of Dan or the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs. And there's those that say, well, it wasn't put into the canon at the Council of Nicaea, therefore I won't cover it. And I think people do themselves an injustice when that happens because Enoch or Enochian Scripture in general is all prophetical, and it deals with the secrets of, of the throne of heaven or the levels of heaven. And a lot of people, you know, may dismiss that because it's over their head when it talks about the inner workings of weather and so forth. But I love Enoch, and Enoch was so special to God that even in Genesis it says God took him, took him for the purpose of writing that book. So I'm glad you quoted that. And, and the and when you the, the, you read the book of Enoch, and it's just filled with just these just wonderful descriptive passages of um, of what heaven's like, seen through the eyes of a man, of course. And, and you know, no matter how eloquent he is, he's not going to be able to describe it, you know, aptly. But um, but, but but despite that, he still describes it very in a very eloquent manner. And uh, you, you just read of the, just these wonderful things that, that are just in store for us. Just these just staggeringly beautiful things, mind-bogglingly beautiful. You know, you look at some of the great. Um, Natural wonders, wonders of creation, you know, the mountains, the rivers, the oceans, and all of these things have their, their great and their glorious beauty, but all of these things are, will pale in, in comparison to what things will be like in the kingdom, in, in heaven. Yeah, I hasn't seen, mine can't know, and that's really the beauty of it all, is that man can't know. We can fight wars for land, territory, even theo theological premises. But no one really knows what we what what's in store for us in the kingdom of heaven. Only Yahweh God, and I don't think my, that God wired our head to where we could even comprehend it. And so that's what we should be striving for: is those spiritual gifts or or treasures in heaven that are uncorruptible, because nothing down here matters. In fact, the closest thing, in my opinion, that matters as an active man down here, an Israelite would be to have natural-born progeny, to actually have children. That's more important than anything else. And a lot of these people who are out here running their quote-unquote ministries, 
and and have their own grandchildren testifying against them for sodomy or, or whatever, I would venture to say that that's probably the reason why. It's because they neglected the number one gift first and foremost, which is their children, and started saying, well, I'm going to tend to the flock of God. So. Well, you raised a, a, an outstanding point when you said that we're, we're not wired to be able to fully comprehend or, it, or, or to even comprehend just to, to a small degree, really, just how wonderful things are going to be in, in heaven. Because if we did, you know, even if we could just experience what heaven's going to be like just for, just for one second, you'd never be unfaithful. You'd never, stop to, you'd never even dream of turning away from the faith, would you? You know, because you, you'd see your reward was... If you could experience your reward, your reward, heavenly reward, for only a second, you'd never, you'd never fall away. So Yahweh keeps it out of the, out of range of our perception. Maybe sometimes gives us a little bit of an inkling of it through the Spirit, but generally keeps us out of the range of, out of the range of our perspective, our perception. So, um, so we will be faithful to Him. We will exercise faith. We will trust in Him, even though we can't see what He has in store for us. Yeah, exactly. And as you've brought up so many times, without faith it is impossible to please God because God has it designed as faith. Everything that man does, at least the first step, always usually has to be done in faith. And then everything else is added. Whether it's pray, prayer, you must pray in faith for it to even be you know, heard of God, and the same thing with acts and everything else. Christ would differentiate time and time again those who did things to be seen doing them and those who really lived them and the world never saw them do it. So, you know, for the celebrity, they want to be seen by TMZ and Hollywood as something great. They want to be seen as doing something. But, you know, God rewards entirely differently, and that's the beauty of it all, is, is the only one that really matters is the Heavenly Father. Now, Jeremy, what's your third verse? My third verse in, again, no particular order, would be found in the first epistle of John, as I've mentioned for my second verse as well, which was from the Gospel of John. But in the first epistle of John, John writes in verse 3, in in chapter 3, verse 4, he says this, very simple, and I'll read this in in the Amplified King James. He says, everyone who commits, practices sin, is guilty of lawlessness, for that's what sin is. Lawlessness, the breaking, violating of God's law by transgression or neglect, being unrestrained and unregulated by his commands and his will. And so the reason I point this out is because here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, is the biblical definition of what sin is. That's the question that so many Judeo-Christian pastors out there cannot answer when you come against them and you were to ask them, what is sin? Most of them will say sin is something bad, you shouldn't be racist, you shouldn't uh, you know, be against homosexuals or whatever. But the biblical definition of sin, at least according to uh, loving John, is a transgression of God's law, proving just like Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19 that we covered before, that Jesus Christ did not do away with the law, and later on, this was written, of, co- of course, post-resurrection. Here's John confirming the same exact thing, that the definition of sin is lawlessness. So for us as Christians to know what is right and wrong according to his will quote-unquote, it must go back to his law time and time again. And it makes perfect sense if you think about it, because God has it right there in black and white, so we know what he approves of or what he disapproves of. All right, well, that was, that was a great little um, 
little sermon there about that. Um, now, now this is um, my third Desert Island verse, and we're talking about our heavenly rewards. And this comes from the book of Matthew. It's Christ speaking, Matthew chapter 16, verses 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that, Jeremy, that encapsulates why we're, we're, uh, we're doing this subject, this, we're discussing this topic today, because it's something really rarely discussed, and Christ said that it's something we need to focus on. You know, our heart needs to be on uh, our heavenly treasure, not just the, uh, our earthly treasures, or not on our earthly treasures at all, which will ultimately be destroyed and, you know, will we'll, we'll fade away. I mean, even if you get something really nice, if you were to get a nice Ferrari or something like that, you know, four weeks later, you're going to be bored with the thing. So no, no, no matter what treasures you get here on earth, they, their glory soon fades, both in your mind and just, just, you know, in fading paintwork and the way things just, you know, always end up um, decaying. But in he heaven, our treasures and the things that Yahweh has laid up for us won't decay. They're, they're eternal and, and they're infinitely beyond the, the most wonderful treasures, the most wonderful earthly reward you could possibly have. Yeah, that's that's an excellent verse as well because that shows the mindset exactly of what we've been discussing this evening of the true Son of God and what they'll be striving for. And those are spiritual gifts, not earthly gifts. That's what separates the wheat from the tares and so forth is the natural man's that way. He's looking for a Lexus. He's looking for comeuppance in the job sector. He doesn't care who he has to step on to actually achieve that. Whereas the true son of God is more concerned with feeding his race, clothing their race, doing good for their neighbor and so forth. And so in doing those things, Jesus Christ said, you know, you're doing them for me. And that's how we store up that treasure in heaven. And that's a beautiful verse in that regard because I think I a lot know. No, go ahead. I just, I just think a lot of people miss that aspect. It, it just occurred to me, Jeremy, that I broke the rules. I read several verses. I didn't mean to do that. I forgot all about that. So I broke the rules that I, I broke the rule that I created. So, um, oh well, not not to worry about that. We'll we'll, we'll overlook that. I don't think I'm going to burn in the fires of Gehenna for that one. Sorry, ah, Jeremy. Yeah, that's exactly. Well, that's the thing is is you know again these verses and a lot of them were put there by man. So some of them. You know, if you were to really read a true Bible verse, it would definitely be a passage, <laughs> you know. So, my fourth... Okay, okay, so... Yeah? Yeah, my fourth Desert Island verse for the evening is one that probably Judeo-Christian and Christian identists alike are familiar with because it's one that usually people memorize after John 3.16. But for this evening, it will be Romans 8.28. And almost everybody knows this. But in the Amplified, it says this, Amplified King James. We are assured and know that God being a partner in their labor, all things work together and are fitting into plan for good to and for those who love God and are called according to his design and purpose. And the reason I chose this, of course, John 8:28 is that aspect. A lot of people misquote this first and foremost and try to give it a universalist meaning and they're the ones who will say well everything works together for good or all things work together for good but again john 8:28 doesn't say that it clearly says that all things work together for good to them that love god and to them who are the called according to the purpose so there's two conditions in order for yahweh god to turn tragedy 
into, you know, a good work for you. And first is loving God. If we love God, then there's a higher chance that he'll do that for us. And secondly, and probably more importantly, is you must be called. As Jesus Christ said, many are called, few are chosen. You have to at least be called in order for God to turn negative things against you. So if God sends negativity your, your way and you're not the Zadok, you're not the called or the chosen, it's, he's not working it together for good for you. So, because first and foremost, you don't love them and you're not the called. So I think that's what people miss in John 8:28 is that aspect, that you have to be called, you have to be chosen in order for God to turn everything to good. And if he says everything... He means everything. So while we sit here in our lot in life right now and say, well, I don't understand why I'm not making the money I used to, or I don't understand why my grapes aren't growing like they used to, the reality is, is in retrospect, you'll be able to look back and see that God was always there anyway. Well, the key thing in that verse, and it's a wonderful, marvelous verse you, you read out there, is that we are called by Yahweh. And this is exactly the opposite to, to how the um, Judeo-Christian mainstream churches um, betray it. They say that we have to accept Christ into our heart. We choose him. Not so. He chooses us. Yeah, that's a good point. And in order to know that we are called of God, we already covered it today, it's those who will strive to follow his law. Now, no one's saying that we're saved through the law, but through the law is knowing the morality of God, and in knowing the morality of God, even though we may break the law, which is, again, sin, or the transgression of God's law, at least we're able to know that we're better able to serve them than the antinomian who come along and say, well, the law is done away with at the cross and relish in the breaking of that law. What I mean by that is I've actually met Catholics who believe that they must violate the laws with the exception of the Ten Commandments because God was, quote unquote, upset with the Jews and the law didn't save them. And that's the extreme opposite end of that but that's a mindset that can take root in man they say well the jews didn't please god through the law so it's fine if i eat pork or if i covet or if i do any of these other things that god forbids well well god god's at, the bible says um you know i go to prepare many ma many mansions for you and uh, the, you know god has in one one respect invited us into his home his house you know we are his children we're spiritually speaking, sitting at his table. And, and, you know, when you're in somebody's home, you have to obey their rules. And, you know, your father sets, you know, when you're a little kid and you're growing up, you know, your father sets certain boundaries, certain laws that, you know, you were not to break or you, you were to suffer the consequences. And, and Yahweh is no different. I mean, Yahweh has made certain laws for us to, in order so we'll get along better together, so we'll carry out his will better, and so things will go better in our lives. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the aspect of, of disrespecting a man in their own home, because that is the modus operandi of the children of the devil, at least in my opinion. You will see these people who, nine times out of ten, and I've definitely noticed it in the last two months since we started Godcasting together, who want to come and tell you how to run your own ministry. On the tail end of what we've discussed about Hal Turner being a turncoat, in my opinion, there's no greater traitor than that is someone who will come up into a home that you've opened for them and stand in your own living room and tell you how to believe in God, tell you how to live your life, and tell you what you must need to do. And that's exactly what Rabbi Samuelson and a lot of the detractors in Christian identity do, is they'll come on your forum, 
They'll come on VNN's forum, and they love telling people in their own living room, in a proverbial sense, in essence, how to run their own ministry. And that just shows you the lifted up mindset that a lot of them have, is because it's nobody's position to tell anybody how to run their own church. But they think they have that right. Well, you know, th- this is a true story, Jeremy. Um, Marty opened up his own church recently, and a guy walked into the, in- into the church, and he said, uh, Pastor Martin, do you allow illicit sex in your church? And Marty said, absolutely not. And the guy said, why not? And Marty said, because it leads to dancing. <laughs> Talk about bass backwards, huh? Yes, uh, I-, I thought, I-, I heard that today, and I thought, of, I-, I sort of like, rejigged it for... For Marty. So, Marty, if you're, you're listening, a special cheerio from the, the over-gender bender. Oh, Marty's definitely um, yeah, listening. You... For someone who doesn't care, he's here every week. Yes, that's right. I mean, for somebody who thinks that we're, you know, the devil personified, you know, the tw- twin demons, you know, you, you wonder why he comes around here so often. Yeah, it must be just the fact that he really doesn't care, you know. Indeed. Indeed. Now, that was your, your fourth, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Okay. Well, you've already mentioned this one, but it's one of, the, one of the great ones when it comes to our heavenly reward, and it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. nine. Uh, but as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. So, you know, Yahweh has given us, you know, has prepared these wonderful, and, and the Bible says he's prepared them. You know, he's, he's already set them up. So Yahweh knows that we're going to make it into the kingdom, that we're going to spend, a, you know, a blissful eternity with him. So, you know, he's he set up everything in, in heaven already for us. And it's just a wonderful thing about just how our, you know, that we're not going to win. We might pass away in this life, you know. We might um, shed this mortal coil, as Shakespeare, Shakespeare once wrote. But uh, we're going to live forever. We're going to live a life that, um, you know, the rich people of the world, the stars and celebrities would, would trade all of their fame, all of their fortune, everything, all the praise that they get for in a heartbeat. Yeah, that's a really good point as well, is because in, in American, you know, culture anyway, that's the definition of success. Is for the average person, they want to be like Brad Pitt. They want to be like Madonna. They want to be like those people. And time and time again, we see that it's lonely at the top, quote-unquote. So these people who do get the whole world handed to them, like Satan offered you know, Jesus Christ, once they receive the whole world or feel at least the whole world is reverencing them and looking up to them as the actor or whatever they are, they're never contented with it anyway. That's where the Whitney Houstons and the Elvis Presleys and all these people come from. Because they overdose on dope anyway in the end. So that's that's a really good verse in that regard because, you know, it's God's will. That's the whole point. In the creation of man, you know, there was one formed and there was one created. And the one that was actually created in God's image is entirely different than the one that was flippantly just formed from the mud. And so, you know, it is important because it is framed it is laid up and stored in heaven by yahweh god meaning it's a part of his will god knows what's in store for you but man can't know it and so that's really i mean the catch-22 if you think about it is man willing to actually uh, be obedient have faith follow his law and do all those things not knowing exactly what the reward is but know that it's good which requires faith or is man instead going to spend his life working a job 
because he knows that every week or two weeks he's going to get a reward in the form of a paper check. Yes, even though we can't see the reward and we can only have, you know, the occasional little spiritual sort of twinge of an inkling about it, um, it all comes down to faith. And we just look around at the, just the, the beauty of our world, the way we have different seasons. I mean, over there you're having to fall, we're having spring here, how you get sunshine, you get rain, how every time you wake up in the morning and even when you're asleep, you're breathing in oxygen. Yahweh's always caring for his creation, isn't he? He's always making sure that the... You know, the sun rises in the east of the, uh, of the morning and sets in the west of a, an evening. All of the, all of the things that he's... And, and just the beauty, just the awe-inspiring beauty that the, the natural world, the, cre- the creation has, holds. You know, he's just, a, he's just a sort of a precursor to just that absolutely mind-boggling, that mind-blowing you know, glory, um, beauty that we'll experience and just wonder that we'll experience when we're when we're we see the father face to face when we can you know sit you know we can commune with him on a one-to-one basis and i mean you know it's it's just the most yeah the reward exactly. that we have in store for us it's just so good it's just beyond the comprehension yeah and i think describe i think that's the way god designed it as well is that you know why man can't really know the thoughts of God and his ultimate plan through it all. We may be given glimpses and, and through his word as well, but, you know, when man comes along and says he knows all truth, and there's a lot of those in Christian identity, that's, that should be a red flag as well because no man really does have all truth. But it is God who judges, and he judges according to, really, for lack of a better term, the heart. The heart behind every decision that we make, you know, or whether we're ignorant or not. It's not about saying, hey, I followed the law 100%, because that, that again, won't save you. So that is a really good point. But everything is controlled by God, and that's the omnipotence of him. But it's up to us to, you know, the first step is usually that, one that's required of faith. And then when we decide to actually have faith within him, everything else is really added to it. And so the, or, in order to know true power... That's the way to do it. Man sits down here and debates about theology nonstop, time and time again. But when we're sitting in the presence of God, and God is our Father for eternity in the restored kingdom, then none of those questions will ever be arisen again. In fact, there'll really be not much word for, or not much need for the written word anymore, because the living word will be there. There'll be very little questions left, any you know. And a lot of people war over that, which is unfortunate as well. As, is in particular dogmas that don't really matter. And, and the Bible says that Yahweh himself will be the light. And that, um, you know, well, I love sunshine, but um, Yahweh's going to be even better than sunshine. And we're going to get in, you know, 24-7. You know, well, of course, <laughs> we won't measure things in days and years, but eternity will just be in the most, spend it in the most beautiful, luxuriant light. And that's light directly from the Father himself. Yeah, and, you know, it should be pointed out as well that Satan is considered the father of lights as well, at least in a lower low, lower case sense, you know. While Jesus Christ is, claims to be the bright morning star in the book of Revelation, the word Lucifer, as a, you know, in the Strong's Concordance, means a bright and morning star or a one of the morning stars. And so, you know, what, on the tail end of what you're saying there is where the children of Israel are lit by Yahweh God for eternity. So also does the devil try to portray his fluorescent and synthetic version of light as well, which is why when you go to Las Vegas or Atlanta or New York or L.A. or even Melbourne, at night the sky is lit up. 
you know. And so when you think about that term as well, is it's always done through lights. Satan wants to be a form of light as well. And that's why a lot of these satanic groups like the Masons, the Illuminati, and the Shriners all say, well, the ultimate goal is illumination. But you truly cannot be Illuminati, quote-unquote, unless God gives you that to see. Anything the devil gets, shows you isn't going to be something you should see in the first place. And that should have been established in the very you know, third chapter of Genesis. Yeah, well, that's like, um, it's like Satan and his people trying to take on the glory that we'll receive, trying to you know, come up with their, their sort of um, cut-rate version of it. But uh, we're going to get the premium brand. Yeah, exactly. They're they're always left with the crumbs anyway. But for everything, just kind of like in the mushroom world, just like in the in the plant world, and even in the animal world with the snakes and so forth and reptiles, is for every non-venomous snake, there's one that looks identical to them that is venomous. For every non-venomous mushroom that's out in the wild, there is a venomous one that can kill you. And so it's the same exact way with tares and wheat and so forth. You know, it's up to us to uh, use spiritual discernment to know, you know, which is which. Which one has life, which one has death. Because even the devil can come to Jesus Christ and offer him the whole world. And the earth and the fullness thereof is Yahweh God's. The devil believed he had a part and in essence has a small amount of power down here on earth that he can give to his children. But the powers he bestows on his children aren't anything compared to even the power we can have through our Father and his Spirit, through his word, in this life right now that we're living. Now what's your fifth and final verse, Jeremy? My fifth and final verse is also from Corinthians, but it is from Second. Corinthians, Paul's second epistle, and it's found in chapter 11, verse 4. And this is the King James. It says this, For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might bear well with him. And so what Paul's saying here is like Jesus Christ said and Yahweh in his Old Testament in that the many of the children of Israelites, or the children of Israel, in this case the Corinthians, would rather have their ears tickled time and time again. And that's what we see within the land today is many people who don't want to be held accountable through the law to not really know who the children of God or the children of the devil are. What they do is they'll erect for themselves their own pastors and their own pastors will teach something that's not even from the Bible. And probably one of the most important aspects of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4, is the aspect that there are other Jesuses. Now, why that may sound crazy, in reality, that's exactly what man does down here time and time again. The only true Jesus Christ is the Emmanuel, God with us, that's transcribed within the Word. But there's a million and one people out there that who want to say, oh, Jesus is this, Jesus is this race, Jesus believes this, or Jesus is tolerant of that. And the only way to really truly know who God is, not what man tells us he is, is through his word. Because here Paul's saying, hey, people can come along, say this is what the Bible says, this is who Jesus is, and this is Christianity in a nutshell, and there are people who would rather, you know, bear with that or accept that and tolerate that over the truth. Yes, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, how we have the word and almost every home has a, a copy of the Bible in it somewhere, that Yahweh has provided his people with that word, even though 
most of these people rarely even opened the Bible at all. But, um, you know, because they never had that in the early days of the church. They had parchments and, you know, big, they had the Bible in dribs and drabs, but they don't have a Bible with concordance and apocrypha and all of the, all of the um, you know, Bible commentaries and uh, concordances and everything that we have now, nowadays. So, so we're really living in fortunate times as far as the availability of that all-important word is concerned, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. And man is without excuse. You know, you know, before the age of the printing press, people could say, hey, I've never heard the, the name Jesus or I've never read the Bible. You know, in the Dark Ages when the Catholics were trying to keep people oppressed and not let them have the Word of God. But in this day and age, everyone is accountable and everyone knows the name of Jesus Christ in this Internet era for the most part. And so his name shall be published among the nations first and foremost. I believe that's something we're, we're seeing come to pass right now. And man is without excuse because everything, for the most part, that we know of Jesus Christ or God stems from the Bible. But wicked men will take what Paul says about Jesus Christ in his Bible and then skew it and turn it into a Jesus Christ that's not even what Paul taught. And so that's what I think the importance of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4 is, is that aspect. That here's Paul warning exactly what we're seeing right now in Judeo-Christianity and even with some nut jobs like Logan who want to come along and take what Paul says about Jesus Christ and bash Paul. So it's the same thing as standing in a man's living room telling him how to live his life because they'll steal from Paul what he says about Jesus Christ and add to it or take away. I'll never forget one time Marty was talking about doing a, um, on, on the movement tour, he was talking about doing a, uh, a special service, a communion service or something. He'd read out a sermon and that, and he's talking about... <laughs> he was talking about doing with Logan. He turned around and he said, and you know, we might even, when we do this service, when, when I read out this sermon, we might even do some scriptures um, written by Paul. I mean, you know, and he didn't sort of, you know, as if to say, you know, well, I'm not sure whether I should really do that with Logan. But, I mean, as if you'd have to apologise for Paul. Imagine coming out and, you know, me saying to you, Jeremy, that the next time we, we, we do a bit of a, a Bible study, we might even read out some scriptures from Paul, as if, you know, Paul was this terrible <laughs> person that we're really not supposed to mention. You know, the, you know the, that weird, you know, uncle who lives under the sink. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we may just get around to reading some of the words of Jesus Christ, you know, as if the law trumps all of that. And that's the whole beauty of it. If anything could be taught from the Old Testament, it should be the aspect of that. The law will never save us. And a lot of the nomians who want to say the law is good, the law is essential, and we should follow it. No doubt, I'm not saying that. But in the end, the law is not going to save us. The blood of Jesus Christ will. You can't sacrifice a, a lamb or a bullock or a turtle dove. And so that's what I think is ironic about it as well. Is they'll sit there and say, I only care what the law says in the red letters. Well, the red letters and the law all testified of Paul. And if you don't believe that, then they, they, you know, they simply do not believe the completion of Scripture. It's here a little, there a little. A uh, perfect example of that would be this. In Scripture, we as Christian identists know that we're supposed to have two witnesses for every matter. So God, through Paul, provided a second witness for almost everything in the New Testament and Old that only had one. So if we take Paul out, we're also losing our second witness. But the Paul basher can't see that, of course. They hate Paul so much. And, or they're the type of people who don't require a second witness. They just take a picture and say, look, Eli's a Jew, and that's good enough for them. And, of course, in Acts, Christ himself 
gave um, Paul the seal of his approval. Not only did he give him the Holy Spirit, which is a seal of his approval, Yahweh's not going to give the Holy Spirit to someone who's not approved of, of him, but um, he said on a couple of occasions that he said to Paul himself that, you know, I, I have you know, chosen you, I've set you aside, I've set you apart, and he, he said to Ananias, you know, this is a man who has been anointed to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ himself anointed Paul and approves of Paul and sanctioned Paul's ministry, then who are we, who are we, Logan, to deny Paul? Exactly. Except for somebody who thinks that they're better than Paul or trying to teach a new way. That's the beauty of it. Was with uh, Paul Basher, was Comper Ray, was Butler, was Red Farron, was Gillette? No, none of them were. But it doesn't stop the imposter from coming in and saying, hey, I'm Christian identity and bashing Paul. Go figure. I thought only homosexuals, faggots, and, uh, and, and lesbians bash Paul, women preachers. But... There's this whole new group of people who now want to bash Paul based on that. And, and, and my whole point with that is it's ironic that all they know of Paul was written by Paul. So they stand right there in Paul's bathroom or in his living room, which is his word or his epistles, and find fault with him. Imagine, you know, imagine the hypocrisy behind that, because even the devil himself was the anointed cherub that covereth, stood over the law, protected the law, you know, and, and got lifted up claiming desiring to be like God through judgment, through being an accuser, or through even that. The devil and the devil alone hates Paul. And it should be pointed out that most kikes or Jews for Jesus are also those who come along and have a problem with Paul. Well, you're saying that homosexuals and lesbians hate Paul. Well, it's been alleged that Marty is both. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Like last week when she called in, you were like, hello, Amy Rose. I know. Talk about the hypocrisy of someone going around in drag like that in a female sock puppet and calling other people gay. Or somebody who's been locked up for four years for sodomy calling other people criminals. You already know you're dealing with somebody right there who doesn't have a full deck. Well, you know, Marty is always accusing me of being a a faggot and being a, you know, a a gender bender. But he admitted to us when we had that uh, infamous stoush with him on air for about two and a half hours. He said that he has female sock puppets. Less than 100, but he does have female sock puppets. And you have to ask yourself, Jeremy, what can a female sock puppet do that a male sock puppet can't do? I mean, why not just have all male sock puppets? And the reason that Marty has female sock puppets because he, he probably thinks to himself, oh, well, you know, this, this guy that I want to get, I, I want to mine his data, I need to get some information off this guy, but, and he's desperate and dateless, so what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll pretend I'm a woman and I'll pretend, you know, I'm interested in him. I like to date with him and I'll get some information out of him that way. So that's clearly why he has these female sock puppets. So here he is going around as women, you know, um, trying to seduce these guys online, and he has the nerve to accuse me of, of a faggot, as me as some sort of, you know, transsexual. I mean, give me a break. Yeah, exactly. That's the hypocrisy of these guys, a lot of them, and it's the double-mindedness that they have. Just having to use a sock puppet should already be suspect to the average person. You would not believe the amount of emails I've gotten from anonymous little Gmail accounts out there from people, men and women both, people saying, oh, Pastor Visser, I've always loved your talk shoe program, but you know, you need to dump that Obadiah guy. And my point is, is I've never done talk shoe programs without... Obadiah. You know, for somebody like me, I'm reading them. I know what it is. I know it's BS because I, they've always been pulpit sermons. Everything that's come through Talk Show, with the exception of maybe two or three of them, 
have all been done with you. But the enemy wants to use these sock puppets and send me stuff to try and split us up. I wonder why. The, the, the only reason they would do that is because, first and foremost, we're doing something right. And secondly, the irony behind it all is saying, oh, like they would listen to me anyway. Like they're trying to play both sides of the fence like the Jew will. And so my point is, is people trying to come to me and say, oh, I've been listening to you on talk show for years. I haven't been on talk show for years. In fact, I haven't even really started doing talk show shows until about two months ago. So, so they don't even know what they're talking about. But I kind of question why it is that people would go set up a sock puppet account, an email account, hide under a woman or a man's, you know, nom de plume or whatever, and send people emails talking about, oh yeah, I'd listen to you more if you didn't listen to Obi. Perfect or, or have Obi on a perfect example. That's R. D. Bradshaw and trying to insult my intelligence. Now R. D. Bradshaw is a Marty sock puppet anyway. But don't try and sit here and think that if I dumped Obadiah on my show, I'd be so foolish to think R.D. Bradshaw would listen to me. R.D. Bradshaw didn't listen in the first place. And so I see the whole similar sentiment when Martin Lindsay talks. He says, well, me and John Britton left Pastor Visser's forum when, when were they ever a member of my forum? When did John Britton ever post in my forum? Never once that I remember Marty did, and he ran a lot of the good flock off. Yes, well, Britain in some ways is more, even more of a loathsome character than Marty is, because at least Marty has the excuse that he's out of his mind for doing the things that he does. But what excuse does Britain has, have? And, I mean, the guy has absolutely no ministry. All he does, he was on um, News Guy's um, chat room the other, last Saturday evening, Johnny Britton was. You could tell by just the kind of language he uses and how he just, you know, constructs his sentences that it was a Johnny Britton, just totally humorless and an idiot. And sure. uh, I yeah, remember I when Marty started going around accusing me on your 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 old forum that I was a, a gender bender and this and that. As soon as he said that, um, Britain started to parrot exactly what Marty said. A anything Marty would say, Britain would just would just mimic. And I mean, uh, 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 it's just so pathetic. He, he, here is a guy who, um, what he's the nephew of uh, Newman Britain, a famous Christian identity. Uh, preacher and, and yet he's he's sort of taken up the mantle by just flushing it down the toilet by hanging out with marty i mean the guy has no ministry uh when was the last time you heard um john Britton, you know write something um you know in tribute to yahweh and, and you know something about christian identity or to preach a christian identity sermon the guy does absolutely nothing just to hang on marty's coattail simply because marty blandishes him because he's newman Britton's son uh, newman Britton's nephew rather you know, that, that because he's some part of some sort of royal Christian identity, identity dynasty. Talk about being, you know, respecter of persons. Just because you you have, um, you know, you come from a relatively good bloodline doesn't mean that you yourself are, are decent. I mean, David had, you know, one of his sons was a real rat bag, you know, King David. So the fact that you come from, you know, royal, a royal lineage doesn't mean anything. It all comes down to the individual man. And, yeah, uh, exactly. Britain isn't much of a man. Even, even Christ said that, that, you know, God can raise up stone to Abraham's seed, and that's exactly what happens to most of these people that put more stock into their birthright over, you know, the law of God. And John Britton, for all intents and purposes, yeah, exactly, nobody knows. Nobody knows that there even is a John Britton, so it would be foolish to accept that ideal. But anybody who's going to go around naming names, saying, I'm related to so-and-so, what does that matter? It, you'd be better off being related to God. You know, and, and if you were Abraham's seed, you would do the works of Abraham. So if you were uh, Newman's seed, you'd do exactly what Newman does. But that's why I don't even think I don't even think he's real. To be honest with you, I think he's just some dude like William Britton, William B, claiming 
to be somehow or another related to Newman Britton. But, you know, I could be wrong in that. But I know Newman wouldn't tolerate a lot of the stuff that Johnny does. And, yeah, I caught him there at the news guy stuff. He sticks out like a sore thumb because he says the same exact stuff over and over. He's a repeater like Marty. Um, now, this kind of ties in with um, my my fifth and final Desert Island verse in relation to our heavenly reward. And it comes from Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. So while all of us who are faithful to Yahweh are going to receive a heavenly reward, the reward, how good that reward is, or uh, is going to depend on, on just um, what we've done for Yahweh in this life. You know, there are going to be, I mean, everyone's going to be rewarded. It's going to, you know, he's going to wipe the tears from, from all of our eyes and all of that. But some, some of us will receive a greater reward than others. And, and there's another verse that ties in, in, in with this that I'd like to, to read because this sort of touches on um, the idea that all Israel will be saved. And it comes from Mark chapter 10, um, verses 29 to 30. Uh, this is, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions, and here's the kicker, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now that was from um, the Amplified Version of Mark 10 verses 29 to 30, but what what he says, part of that reward is eternal life. But that's only for people who... Who, who, you know, are faithful to Christ, who, who obey his word and who make sacrifices in this life, they will get eternal life. It doesn't, you, you know, there is a proviso on that. There, there are some provisions and, uh, on this. So it's not just, uh, eternal life isn't going to just, it doesn't belong to, to people, Israelites, who do nothing. It belongs to those Israelites who are filled with the Spirit and who obey his Yahweh, who actually achieve things for, for Yahweh in this life, whose works are according to, who, who bear the righteous fruit in this life. Yeah, exactly. And that's so, that's so true when you think about Jesus Christ would say time and time again little statements like, Woe unto ye rich, for ye have received your reward. And if you think about what he's saying in that is he's actually condemning them with that statement, meaning that the only reward that the quote-unquote rich get are those ill-gotten gains that they desired so much in life. It is a reward. It's not much of a reward. It's definitely not the reward that Yahweh God will give us, which is eternity within his kingdom. But the reward that they get is that, and that's kind of sad in a lot of ways. Woe unto you, rich, you've received your reward. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for that is their reward, essentially being reverenced by man and not God. So, you know, you think about rewards, there's all sorts of different types of rewards, and one of the rewards that Esau-Edom gets is transcribed right there in the book of, of Obadiah. So while they're not of the covenant, while the law wasn't given to them, they're still rewarded by our God, and that's with fire upon their own head. Well, the bottom line, Jeremy, I suppose out of all of this, the, the one thing that the common denominator here is that no earthly reward compares to Yahweh's heavenly reward. I mean, man can reward you with some pretty nice things, money, cars, you know, luxurious mansion, you know, supermodels and all things like that. But um, the, the rewards Yahweh has, no one can out-reward Yahweh. I mean, if he, he says he's got a, a reward for us, it's going to be beyond you know, anything we could possibly imagine in this, in this life, you know, no, no matter what kind of financial, sexual or reverential reward it can be. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we should be striving for is 
the reward that God gives. Man, man's reward is, is temporal, and I think that's overlaid within the account of Jesus Christ, quote-unquote, temptation by Satan, is that, you know, for all intents and purposes, Jesus Christ could have bowed to the devil and done him homage, and the devil could have given him minuscule powers within the government or within, you know, Herod's court or Pilate's court or, or, or any of those things. But Christ knew, just like he did with Caesar, you know, render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's, knowing that the earth and the fullness thereof belong to Yahweh God. He knew that really the earth and the fullness thereof is God's and that there was a greater reward. And that's an example that I think we should follow, is that many people who are godless or don't really know the law of God or don't, aren't looking for those rewards, which is eternity in the kingdom with Yahweh God, are those who are more susceptible to fall aside for the rewards of the world. And the rewards of the world are temporal and short-lived. They're not really rewards at all when you think about it. You know, what, 70 years versus 70,000 or 70 million. Man's mind can't comprehend that. But eternity is a long, long time. Oh, it is, isn't it? I mean, just, just, just think in, um, in you know, two hundred and fifty quadrillion life, quadrillion years, we're still going to be alive. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why the rest of the world's completely just, you know, obliterated. Or their works. You know, man, man, no matter what man does, you could be a really good carpenter, you could be a really good mason, for example, you could build really good bricks and, and do all sorts of things, or build buildings. But the end result of it all is it's gone, it's forgotten. Given a hundred years, every building will stand or will fall. And I think that's something that maybe we should bring up in a future study as well as the aspect of the tohu vabohu or the full circle. That which was shall always be, and there is no new thing under the sun. It, it's easy in this latter era, I think, with the Internet age, the wireless age, and all of these things to say, well, this is all new, this is, this is different. But in reality, it isn't. It's all been done before, and it's all been destroyed before and come full circle. This is, the, you know, this is the, technically, for all intents and purposes, the second Earth Age, and we're looking forward to the third and final Earth Age. But my point is, is there isn't anything new under the sun. So while we live in this apostasy, and everything like electricity, Internet, and cell phones are done through the air, Jesus Christ said 2,000 years ago that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So, you know, there's nothing new in that regard is we need to come out from among that and, and, you know, cling to his word because the devil does have certain little lesser case gifts down here that he can give his children. And his children usually follow his book. And his book is usually always centered around lawlessness, which is what we see in the media and the television and so forth. It's always, you know, fudging it here, fudging it there. I believe, and my wife is, me and my wife have even talked about this, that one of the greatest desires of the devil wouldn't necessarily be the fact that he wants to not be seen or, or be invisible. It would be the aspect that he wants you to believe that you can sin and get by on it, which is exactly what he told Eve in the garden, yea, hath God said. Because his belief is to, to let you know that, or, or at least to try and get you to accept the fact that, hey, I can sin right here and God will forgive it. Not really. That's the left side of, of Jesus Christ, those who said we did marvelous works. And he said, depart from me. Or in the Bible where, where it says, whoso turneth his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination to Yahweh God.
Sorry about that. I didn't realize the mute button was on there, Brother Obi. Sorry. I'm glad you stayed on the line. Oh, did you catch what I just said then, Jeremy, or did you inadvertently mute? No, I, I was inadvertently muted. Uh, Martin Lentz is posting that self again, so I had to mute him, unfortunately. He seemingly can't behave, and it looks like I hit mute all, so that's my bad, actually. But go ahead and repeat All right, I just... Okay, I was just asking, soon we're just past the, the top of the hour, uh, top of the second hour, if we had any callers. Yeah, now would be the time to call in. If anybody is interested to do as such, go ahead and call in. And please, by all means, if you can, play a la Stump the Trunk style, because I would love a lot of you people, especially the detractor, to come along who have issue with what we're preaching and uh, explain your reason. Like I mentioned before with Jesus Christ, they always reverted to straw man arguments, but could never really condemn him in the law. And for eight years or so, I've had a lot of people say, oh, Pastor Bissler's wrong, but none of them ever even show me. And so I desire that. So anybody can call in, but please, if you're able to call in and, and, and have a serious question that can stump the pastor, please do so as well. But uh, yeah, so that, that's open for you. Well, if they stump you, Jeremy, they'll certainly stump me because I don't have anywhere near your knowledge of Scripture, but um, we'll see how we go. Well, I, I just think it's funny how a lot of people within Christian identity will, they say something as if it's fact, and they never really have to back it up. A perfect example of that is a picture of Eli James. For somebody who's going to come along and base their opinion, in essence, uh, creating their own judgment of Jesus Christ by judging their brother based on a picture... You know, hey, I, we don't even know that picture is real. We don't even know if that picture is of, quote-unquote, Eli James. But that's the difference. As we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, there's always going to be a group of people out there who will say, well, there you go, there's a picture, whether they believe or don't. I don't believe they do. And I think that's their whole purpose is to sit there and to do exactly like you said, denigrate and degrade Christian identity by going out against many of the uh, top-level preachers who actually have you know, an opinion. It's the same repetitive BS time and time again. But for the true Son of God, we know that anything, all matters must be established by two witnesses. A lot of what I've seen in the last year or so, mostly inspired by Rabbi Samuelson, doesn't require any witness, just opinion. And people who believe their opinion is truth are more dangerous because that leads right exactly to what I was saying at the beginning of the broadcast. They're the type of people who want to see or do you damage or harm because of how you think. Well, I think uh, Marty often, Marty often um, comes up with these idiotic notions about people. He doesn't believe them initially, but then he repeats them so many times that he just buys into his own lies. I, I reckon when he first started calling me over gender bender, he didn't really believe that I was a transsexual. He just did that in the hope that I'd get so sick and tired of him doing it that I'd turn around and show, a, uh, you know, post a photo of myself, post some personal information to show that I, I wasn't. A, a transsexual but then i think he just got so caught up in the lie he ended up buying it yeah exactly and 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 for all intents and purposes my opinion is that if somebody like logan wants to come along and just buy something they're not christian anyway if they buy what somebody says i don't buy what anybody says and while i may believe certain things about certain ci pastors or or, or believe that 
it may be more probable than not. One thing you're not going to hear me is come and sit and buy something based on, on what somebody else says. Everything requires two witnesses. And these people who sit here and say, oh, well, I can tell that guy's a Jew based on a picture, no, they can't. No one can, and that's the bigger irony. I've heard these people sit and say they can trace their lineage back to Adam, and between you and I, that's absolutely impossible. It cannot be done. So you can't trace your family tree beyond 100, 200 years if you're lucky. But these people are so assured that they're sons of Adam, they'll lie like that and say they can trace their genealogy all the way back to Adam. Impossible. Good luck. But it all comes down to the spirit, doesn't it? I mean, they're looking at things through a natural sense. They're saying, oh, well, because I come from this person, I came over on the first fleet, or my family came over on the first fleet, that, uh, you know, I am of the pure Israelite race. But that's not how we determine whether someone's of the pure Israelite race. Uh, Yahweh determines it by calling them and filling them with his spirit. I mean, that is the ultimate proof that you, have been, that you are of the pure Israelite race. There is no greater proof than that. I mean, you, you can't, even if you could trace your family tree right back to Adam, you, you have no idea that there, there isn't a, a nigger in the woodpile somewhere. I mean, you can't go back and, and see, see all, of the, all of the people that your, your, you know, your, your forebears had, had you know, sexual relations with. I mean, there's no way of telling that. The only way you can tell is from Yahweh, who knows full well who's who and who's Jew and who's Israelite. You know, he, if he fills you with his spirit and he calls you, well, you, you know, you can rest assured, you have his guarantee that you are of the pure Israelite race. Yeah, exactly. And that's the whole, whole thing about it is you think about even in the Gospels where they came to Jesus Christ and they told him, hey, you know, Jesus, your mother's outside. And his reply to that was, who's my mother? Who's my father? My mother, my father, my brothers, and so forth are all these people who will do the will of my father. I mean, in essence, that's how we should be as well, is just because you have white skin doesn't mean you're a member of the tribe, period. In fact, in a lot of ways, that's the exact opposite. While the Jew, as a race, is able to infiltrate almost every single other race out there, they predominantly stick to the quote-unquote white race, and that's the one they've infiltrated. And like we discussed earlier, how the Jew or the Negro doesn't know the difference between the Jew and the white man, you know, that's that's exactly my point. Tares look like wheat, goats half-ass look like sheep, and so forth, but it always comes back to the fruits. And many of these people, their fruits are, are completely rotten. I mean, they're more worried about what we might preach, writing these long articles like Hollywood moguls do, like reviewing movies. I think it's great, you know, because if they want to send that type of promotion to us, Beautiful. If they want to call Olga and say she's my mother, then some old lady out there in middle America who gets a call is going to say, who's Pastor Visser? Look me up and maybe even become a listener. Well, if Olga has any good-looking blonde-haired or red-haired daughters, then tell them to give me a call, Jeremy, because okay. that'd, that'd be of the race, and I wouldn't mind um, you know, meeting them with a view to um, you know, becoming husband and wife. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And why are they worried? That's the whole point. If, you know, even if they believed in the Bible, if we're the blind leading the blind, what do they think they're doing? The only purpose someone like them would have, based on their own mouth or their own admission, would be the fact that we're preaching to the genuine flock of God. And that's what they're threatened by. So they feel they have to warn the flock. What, what, you know, Christ says, my sheep hear my voice and follow, and moreover the voice of the stranger they will not follow. So the whole premise of these people worried that somebody might listen to Eli or Bill or whoever they deem is not 100% white flies in the face of the teachings of Jesus Christ who said, it's impossible, it cannot happen 
doesn't matter. A true child of God, a true saint, isn't going to listen to a mamzer in the first place. That's what he said. And that's right, because the Spirit is he's guiding that person. The Spirit knows all things. Now, Jeremy, um, can I, I'll have to leave shortly, but um, before I do, can, can we just discuss a little bit about next week? Because I'm not sure exactly what, I know you want to talk about Halloween, but what aspects of it will we be discussing? Basically, somewhat of the historical aspect of it you know, the tradition and how it came to be. I wanted to touch upon All Saints Day and All Hallows' Eve and basically the Romanization of these through Constantine. Many, like, you know, I've touched on before in the past where Saturnella became Christmas and so forth and the intermelding of the pagan religions in with uh, Christianity. And that's where All Hallows' Eve came from. All Hallows' Eve, as you know, I wanted to touch upon the historical background of it. But, of course, it will be an anti-Halloween discourse because, you know, Halloween is the devil's night. But I wanted to give more or less a brief background behind, you know, Halloween and, and some of the European countries that follow it. And the alternatives to that, like All Saints Day, which is what we, many of the southern churches down here do celebrate, which is at the midnight hour. Most people miss that in the regard of what Halloween is. Between uh, October 31st and November 1st is the witching hour, quote-unquote, at the midnight hour. But what a lot of people miss is at midnight on Halloween, it transfers from All Hallows' Eve to All Saints' Day. <clears throat> so excuse me. Oh, that's so, so that was one such part that I wanted to touch upon in that. And then give just kind of a, a, a background into American and European death worship. As you mentioned today, how death will be put away and how I said that in Revelation, death is personified, capitalized, being another name of Satan. I also wanted to briefly touch upon how most media is always centered around death worship. Well, what I might do next week, I might discuss how, um, have a little look at how the supernatural impacts upon our lives, about how we embrace the supernatural in so many aspects of our lives. For example, did you know back in the day in, in America, Ouija boards were, were as popular as uh, hula hoops and yo-yos? Almost every home had a Ouija board. I believe that, actually. And it seems like when I was a kid in the 70s, you could go and buy a Ouija board you know, because Milton Bradley was mass-producing them. At least it seemed that way. Yes, yeah, so, so I'll get into that. And, of course, um, a Ouija board were, uh, was in one of the key scenes in the movie The Exorcist, and it led to, we, we kind of believe that it led to Reagan's possession. Yeah. Yeah, and that would be something else that would be perfect to discuss next week as well, which is something we've been discussing here in Brooks, is the aspect of the exorcism and exorcists how once upon a time and historically, you know, preachers were called to do that, to actually cast demons out of people. But now, in this day and age, even many of the, uh, the Catholics are forbidden by the higher echelons of the Vatican to even do an exorcism. And so whether I, I'm not saying they're right or they're wrong, but the aspect is, is that it's seemingly America here and parts of Europe have fallen away from the ideal of demonic possession, which is pivotal to Christian teaching, that the devils believe and tremble and the devils go from one vessel to another and that man can't kill demons. Now we live in an era where it's an enlightened thought to say, well, there's no such thing as demons, you know? Well, well, well if, we, 
<laughs> if we're going to discuss demonic possession, we'll have to have Logan Hunter on because he's a, he's one of the world's leading exorcists. He cast, what was it, 50 demons out of Linda? Oh, yeah. That was beautiful. And to hear a man justify domestic violence by saying, hey, I was casting demons out of that woman, not beating her ass, that was quite refreshing, to be honest with you, because that kind of gave, you know, hey, that's something out of center field right there. I've never really heard that excuse. I've heard men say they beat their wife when they're drunk or when they're, you know, doing drugs or, or even when they're going through a divorce. But I've never heard somebody actually say that, that he wasn't beating his girlfriend up. He was casting demons out of her. That's a good excuse right there. See how that flies in court. And that's exactly what I'm pointing out today is, you know, 100 years ago, if a church member or a pastor actually cast a demon out, hey, good for him. Now, if somebody were to do that, he could be drugged in front of a court of man, a true exorcist, not somebody who's just beating his wife and trying to say he's an exorcist, would be drugged before a court of man, and it's illegal. Well, seeing we're speaking about, um, we're going to speak about devilish things next week, Jeremy, I might bring up the the British version of uh, the Franklin cover-up. You've, you've heard of the Franklin cover-up, have you? No, I haven't, actually. All oh, right, well, I'll discuss, I won't get into that now, because I've got to, got to go in a second, but um, yeah, it, it's kind of... Uh, you, you can look it up on my forum. You'll find some information about the Franklin cover-up and what that's all about. But uh, there is a British version of it that involves uh, a number of prominent Jews, in particular one, Jimmy, Jimmy Savile. And there seems to be some child sacrifice and all sorts of nasty things that have occurred, occurred uh, over there in, in Britain. It's unfolding at the moment. There are a couple of threads um, in the Hot Topic section of my forum that um, talk about Jimmy Savile and various news reports about that. So we'll, we'll, we'll have a look at that as well. But... Um, I'll have to get going now, now, Jeremy, but it's been an excellent show today. Boy, have we covered a lot of topics, man. Yeah, I really do enjoy these, and it's for that purpose. I like giving people a portable uh, version of, of CI Doctrine because I've actually had people contact me in the last few weeks as well saying that you know they've been able to download all of the Covenant People's Ministry sermons onto their iPhones and their MP3 players, and listen to them on the fly or wherever they go. And that's what I think is the beauty of this, is that you don't have to listen to 100 CI sermons to, to get the core root of some of the most essential verses. And so I think we're doing great with the material that's being covered right there. And the downloads, at least on a weekly level, are insanely off the charts. And if you've noticed over on YouTube, we've grown 20, 20 followers in the last week. That's pretty good. That's like two, three three people on YouTube a day. And and going back to your question, I never ever in the, you know, the last eight years ever envisioned a, a point or in the future where I'd actually be producing my old material or reproducing it for YouTube and having a whole new slew of people coming on listening to that and saying, wow, the overwhelming amount of feedback on YouTube, even though that's partially owned by, by Google and all of that, has been 100% positive, even from the Judeo-Christian. And so that, that's what I think is actually kind of exciting, is a lot of these shows are being listened to around the world by people you know, who aren't even CI, and they don't understand why it's so good. But they're coming, they're listening, especially in archives, so that's beautiful. Well, I haven't been to YouTube to check it. I, I've been a couple of times to check out what you posted there, but much of the stuff that's posted there I've already listened to in audio form. But I'll have to go there, have a, have a read of some of those comments. That should be interesting. But anyway, Jeremy, I, I have to go. It's been a great show today, so Yahweh bless, and uh, look forward to seeing you same bat time, same bat channel next week. Excellent. I'll be here. Thank you for uh, being here as well, Brother Obadiah.
All right. Yahweh bless. Bye-bye. Yahweh bless you. Appreciate it. And with that, dear kinsfolk, it should be pointed out that Obadiah and myself do broadcast here every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And as I briefly discussed on my verse, my second chosen verse for the evening, which is John 8, 44, I'd like to leave with the teaching of John as well to be found in his epistle, which I briefly touched upon in that. And that is the first epistle of John, chapter 3, verse 12 where John said, well, beginning in verse 11, John says this about love. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his own brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Pay close attention, verse 15. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding within him. And so this is the reason why in the past I've sent many letters out to the Manson family before some of them died. I got several responses, uh, especially from Susan Atkins as well, where I straightforwardly in her face told her that she will not have eternal life, that there's nothing waiting for her on the other side. Why? Because of this verse right here. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life abiding within them. It is impossible. Those that cross the line, that is God, having the keys of life and death, those who cross those lines and attempt to take a life, simply do not have the blessed assurance that you and I do down here in this earth age. That we will be with God, we will be with him in the kingdom. Murderers do not have that. But more specifically, according to 1 John chapter 3, Verse 15, so do those who hate their brother. If you hate your brother, do not slander him. Leave the blind, leave them be. God will judge them. But if you make the mistake of judging your brother, you're judging the law, and in essence, you hate God. So with that being established, until next weekend and or until this Sunday, this is Pastor Visser once again from Covenant People's Ministry, wishing you and yours great studies, war for Christ. Amen.